By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. So the hero bullshit of entrepreneurship of like, I must grind myself down. I'm a fucking hero, I'm working super hard, I'm doing it right. And it's such bullshit and it's such a toxic aspect of all work and I hate it, but I definitely worked 110 hour weeks for like months. Mm. Ground myself down to the point of deep misery and there is no quicker way to hate a thing you love than to work like to work on it like that. Right, like I really love coffee. I definitely got to the point where I was like, I should quit coffee. I should just, I, I, I hate this. I hate this. I hate my life. I hate working in this. I should just do something else. Because I worked in a stupid way and I burnt myself out physically and emotionally because people do that because the world says, good for you. Get the grind on, you know what I mean? It's your thing, it's yours, pour yourself into it. You're like, no, don't, don't do that, that's really bad. What you should do is start with enough capital that you can hire people to work with you, pay them properly, uh, uh, and then work in a healthy manner. Do you know what I mean? Like, just have work and home, uh, be separate. That's helpful, turn off. Don't work at weekends or don't work some days a week. It's very satisfying early doors to, to pour yourself into a business. It is rewarding, it's enjoyable, but it, you're just burning through yourself so fast. And so I regret not starting with probably twice as much money, hiring more people out of the gate, and going home at five o'clock. Hey friends, welcome back to Deep Dive. If you're new here, my name is Ali, and in each episode I chat to entrepreneurs, creators, authors, and other inspiring people about how they got to where they are, and the strategies and tools that can help us along our shared journey of living healthier, happier, more productive lives. Now, many of us dream about turning our passion or hobby into a business, but very few of us manage to successfully do it and at least keep it fun while we're doing it. One person who seems to have really nailed it is world barista champion, author, creator, James Hoffman, who is one of the most famous people in the world when it comes to coffee. He's got his own coffee shop, he's got his own coffee roasters, he's got his own YouTube channel with 1.2 million subscribers, he has hundreds of thousands of followers across all the other social media platforms, he's written a best-selling coffee-themed book. And in this episode, we talk a lot about how he's managed to build this empire themed around this passion, this hobby of coffee. We talk a bit about how to actually build a bricks and mortars, like physical goods, coffee roastery type business completely from scratch. And we talk a little bit about James's regrets when it comes to hustling and burnout. I definitely enjoyed the conversation. We could have talked for hours and hours more because there was so much more to unpack in James' story. So we're definitely gonna have him on for a part two at some point. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this conversation between me and James Hoffman. I wanna understand how, you, how how do we get here? How did you end up becoming the world's most famous coffee person on the internet? I don't think I can say I'm the world's most famous coffee person on the internet. I feel like <laughs> Howard Schultz still will maintain like higher. Howard Schultz, never heard of him. Who never, is he? never, yeah. never, no, no. I think, you Wait, know, there's really? James Hoffman and then there's like, I don't, I don't know anyone else in the coffee world, to be honest. So you're in a category of one as far okay. as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, how did this happen? It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I think, um, so I've been in coffee since 2003. Okay. Most people start in coffee for the same reason, which is sort Sorry, of... How, how old were you in 2003, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> uh, 22, 23. 22, 23. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm like, how old am I now? I'm 42 now. Okay. I think about it. So that. at the age of like 23, yeah. you got into coffee. Got into coffee. What, because... what were you doing before 23? Oh, uh, I worked as a croupier in casinos. As what, uh, sorry? A croupier. What, what's a croupier? <laughs> uh, you deal casino games. So, oh, so okay. if you go gambling yep. in the, the bow tie and the nonsense, I would oh. you know, do that. Okay. Um, did you go to university? I did go to university for no real good reason. What, what did you uh, study? <laughs> <laughs> I have a combined arts degree in um, philosophy, Central and East European Area Studies, and East Asian Studies. 
Um, <laughs> okay. From Durham University, which nice. which gives me the extra letters on the end. Yeah. Um, Wait, what? Extra letters on the end? You get the you get the B A ons Dunelm, so oh. you know, like Oxford, Cambridge, yeah. and Durham. Get, Oxon Cantab. Right. Oh and, yeah. And, and so I get a Dunelm for no good reason. Nice. Uh, I thought that was like a furniture company. Or something. No one's. It is. I think. Uh, <laughs> oh, it is okay. No one's ever asked to see my degree. I I don't regret going to university. I yeah. should not have gone to university. Okay. I gained nothing other than debt and weight. Uh, <laughs> that was my. I had good and friends and life experience, all that stuff. But academically, yeah. Totally waste of time after university were you like I, I have this combined arts degree in philosophy and stuff what am i doing with my life totally there was a job demonstrating domestic coffee machines in a house of fraser department store that paid weekly and um you know paid six pounds an hour uh, and i was like whatever i don't drink coffee how hard can it be and so uh, i got this job and what i've always done that's a sort of weird sickness for me is whatever i've worked in I've tried to kind of read up upon. So when I worked as a croupier, I got really into like the history of card sharping and and kind of uh, a little bit of magic stuff. Cheating at cards, sorry. Card sharping is the sort of broad term. And um, this is a really interesting history around that. Anyway, uh, coffee, same thing. I started buying whatever books I could find about coffee. uh, And I read a couple that just really interested me. Um, there's a book called The Devil's Cup that's kind of uh, essentially about coffee's journey from Ethiopia as it spread throughout the whole world and it was kind of the way it infects and binds itself into different cultures just really interested me I was like coffee's way more interesting than I thought it's not just Nescafe that was my kind of limit of understanding and so I decided I would learn to drink coffee and and I did and and I just sort of fell in love with it and I tried to work in wine when I was a little bit younger sort of university time and just sort of hated that industry what was it about you that makes you want to kind of... Because I imagine if you're getting like a six quid an hour job, most people yeah. wouldn't think, you know what, let me read up about the history of coffee so I can understand it more. I don't know. I mean, yeah. there wasn't a lot to do most of the time. It's one part of it. And I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I've always been a, a reader, yeah. uh, an aggressive kind of reader. And so I was like, well, I may as well know what I'm talking about. I dislike, uh, uh, you know, I'm not a comfortable liar or, or, or bluffer to a point. Uh, and so I just, you know, started reading about it. And then I just kind of fell into this rabbit hole where it just fascinated me. And I started working my way up that company's kind of, I started doing training and teaching for that kind of company who did demonstrators. Yeah. So I looked after kind of demonstrators in like Selfridges and House of Fraser and John, all the kind of big department stores here. And then I got a job training for a kind of big commercial machine company rather than domestic ones. Commercial, like those big ones that cost them Starbucks to use. Yeah. Like, like, like car money. And how how old were you at this point? 24. Four, okay. 20, 20, 24, 25. So in about a year or two, you sort of worked your way up the House yeah. of Fraser department store hierarchy to become and, um, a kind of demonstrator of coffee machines. Yeah. The, and then you like, did a sort of lateral move to the to, industrial. To teaching people about coffee, right? So okay. I would then go around the UK. I had like a big commercial machine in my car, a projector screen. I would turn up and do these trainings because the coffee scene in 2005 was wasn't really there. You know what I mean? It was growing and it was kind of being fostered. And there were these things called barista competitions. So I went in my demonstrator job, I'd met this guy who was the UK barista champion. And I didn't know that much. I did know that he would come in, I would clean everything, prep it for him. He would work for four hours and then leave and I would clean up again. And he would earn more that day than I did that week. I was like, tell me more about these competitions. (laughs) Uh, And so I got into the competition thing and I won the UK barista championship. What is a barista competition? It's kind of part... Uh, cooking competition, part sommelier competition, part dog show. Like you are... Dog show. <laughs> it's performance, right? Like you're sort of assessed on your performance as well. So you make... Um, there's four judges who are your customers and you make them each an espresso, each a cappuccino, each what's called a, a signature drink, which is a non-alcoholic coffee cocktail of some sort. They judge you on your drinks. Are they delicious? Uh, on your knowledge, on your presentation skills. There's a couple of other people who judge your technical skills. 
and the best barista in this weird game based on coffee wins. And so I competed in 2005, won in the UK in 2006, and ended up winning the world competition in 2007. So it was kind of, it, coffee, to, so this is kind of really important. Coffee was so young in some ways at that point that a kid could come in, start drinking coffee in 2004 and be a world Bristol champion in 2007. That shouldn't be allowed, right? Like okay. I, I'm not some sort of uh, savant in the world of coffee. It, it just was an immature industry that if you were willing to work hard and, and you got lucky and I got lucky, then you could sort of have these kind of breaks. Uh, okay. uh, so... Yeah, it's Wait, kind of so, weird to me. And uh, is, is is that a thing now? Like, could someone listening to this decide, you know what, I'm going to become world coffee champion in the next two years? Or, it, it's so much really. more competitive now. Like, it's a much more developed thing where, you know, people might train for a long time. The competitions are just much harder. The standards keep going up and up and up. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the nice thing about winning the world is that they put you out to pasture. You're not allowed to compete again. Oh, so, so that's great. So <laughs> you are undefeated and, yeah. and you know. <laughs> It's not like every year you have to sort of fight back and retain your title. Exactly. So you're not you're not welcome. And yeah. that's good. It's also bad in that every year you dilute the pool of world champions one more time. Mm. Uh, so you you are less interesting every year, which is kind of uh, something I worked out quite early on. And, and that wasn't really a route I pursued of like being a world champion for whatever. Um, so in 2008, I started a business. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Can we re rewind a bit? So yeah. you're... Doing the selling industrial coffee machines yes. and training people in how to use Make industrial coffee. coffee machines. And then you discover that there's this thing called the barista championships. Roughly. And so w what was the process from, from the, oh, th there is a thing such as this to I'm going to actually start competing in this thing? Pretty, I mean, pretty short. So, uh, mm. you know, the community was very small then. So finding people who knew about the competitions was pretty easy. I began to work with people who understood them or judged in them or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and my boss at the time was hugely supportive of them. And they were doing work to kind of get these competitions happening because they saw that if coffee boomed in the UK, if you sold commercial machines, you would benefit. So their job was very much to kind of fan the flames of getting coffee going in the UK. Mm. Um, so I was kind of supported very much by that employer, which is kind of unusual. Uh, in, in some way, or was back then. I ended up quitting my job before I competed in 2007. Uh, sort of, if you go and tell people what to do for a long time, there is a point at which you should be like, just go and do it. Like, mm -hmm. stop, stop, pre just go and open a coffee shop. And that's what we were going to do. So myself and my business partner, we're going to open a coffee shop in Shoreditch. We're going to roast the coffee on site. Uh, and uh, we quit our jobs. And uh, I was going to compete. I didn't think I would win went to Tokyo where the competition was. One, that kind of ruined everything because suddenly I had to, you know, there's kind of responsibilities and travel and opportunities when you win. Okay. That pushed us back until 2008, which was kind of good in that we were about to sign a lease just as the, the global economy tanked. Mm. And so we didn't sign a lease. And we were like, this is, this is just a bad time to sign a 10-year lease. Um, and so we took a, like a little railway arch in, in there's loads of railway arches. So they were cheap spaces back then in London. And we started roasting coffee there and trying to wholesale it into London cafes. And that worked. And that, you know, that turned into a whole other thing. To, to, to what extent are independent coffee shops concerned by the Costas and the Starbucks of the world? We're going to take a very quick break to introduce our sponsor for this episode, who is Brilliant. I've been using Brilliant for the last few years, and they're a fantastic interactive platform with online courses in maths, science, and computer science. My personal favorites are the computer science courses. I think they're absolutely fantastic. And when I was initially applying to med school, I was actually torn between applying to medicine and applying to computer science. And I ended up going with medicine in the end, which I really don't regret. But there's a big part of me that really wanted to continue learning the stuff around computer science, continuing to understand how 
coding works. And the courses on Brilliant have given me that foundation in computer science, which I didn't have before. The courses are really fun, engaging and interactive. And the way they teach you stuff is based on very first principles thinking. Like they'll teach you a concept and then they'll take you through interactive exercises to actually help solidify your understanding of that concept. And it's pretty cool because they're always updating the library with new courses. For example, there's one they've just released called Everyday Maths, which is kind of like a visual exploration of the maths that we use in everyday life. Like for example, fractions and percentages and putting them in a context that makes it very understandable and certainly very different to the kind of boring way that I was taught maths when I was in school. The courses and lessons are particularly good if you have a busy life with lots of stuff going on because they really teach you the stuff in bite-sized chunks. So you can always return to a course at a later date if you don't have time to do it in one sitting. If any of that sounds up your street, then do head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive and the first 200 people to hit that link, which is also going to be in the video description and in the show notes, will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you so much to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode. Not hugely, oh, unless okay. they're in... Um, most independents see other independents as competition. By and large, uh, they are they are trading on the idea that you're buying from them something of higher quality, made with better ingredients, made with more care. Okay. Costa is trading on it's convenient and and relatively inexpensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and that's a different audience who is prioritizing one thing over another. Mm. Um, and you know, independents are more focusing on space experience. It should be a nice place to go and hang out. Right. It's important. It's, you want to be in a space for an hour. It should be a nice space. I don't particularly enjoy being in most chain coffee shops for an hour. Mm. I don't like the space. They want me to move on. And yep. they need me to move on because, you know, we're, uh, that's part of the business model. Whereas I think it's, it's kind of different in independent businesses. So as a uh, – do you – does the coffee from Costa or Starbucks just taste objectively worse to you than coffee from an independent place generally? I enjoy it less. Okay. Let's go with that. Like better and worse, it gets very subjective. It gets easily quite preachy of like, well, mm. this is why I think it's bad or, or judgy or those kind of things. And lots of people enjoy coffee from Starbucks. Millions of people. Yep. enjoy coffee or even from coffee Starbucks. from uh, mcdonald's <laughs> right like and, and, and the fact that i don't enjoy it is not a reflection on them if, yeah. if i say it's 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 worse than what i drink that is a reflection on them if i say i don't enjoy it as much it's not and that's kind of an important i think one of the things that kind of has helped me in the kind of uh growth on youtube is, is having an attitude of like i'm not trying to judge what you drink but if you want it to be better i want to help you that's the that's the kind of the, the vibe there. Um, not this is what you should drink. This is how to be correct. This is what you should order. None of that nonsense. It's just no one likes it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't enjoy it as much. It's a different product. It's just a different thing, and it's it's got a different intended sort of target price point process than what you would see at a good independent. Okay, so it sounds like I guess with any. Even with a kind of, sort of a business model, I'm more familiar with like starting a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to do unless you have a way of differentiating yourself in the market, as it were. Absolutely. And even then, it takes a large amount of consistency and effort and sticking with putting a lot of stuff out there and not making much money for a very long time. Yeah. And then when, once you get that product market fit, as it were, you then benefit from kind of good things happening. Yeah, I think there are there are successful coffee shops out there that make people a good living and they enjoy running that business. But I think you've got to want to enjoy running the business. Uh, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, and that's the, that's the bit where... Kind of like if you enjoy baking, you shouldn't necessarily open a bakery because right. those are two very different things. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the best operators are people who love hospitality and they understand coffee's place within that, as food's place in that, you know, how signage works. 
that has a place in the experience of hospitality. And, and those are the best operators to me. They're also the most profitable, most successful, because they're, they're kind of the holistic operator, not just the coffee obsessive, mm. who's like, I'm gonna serve the best coffee in London. And then they're kind of bummed that no one cares because the wait is long, it's not comfortable, it's not enjoyable. Mm. It's not what I need necessarily from the coffee shop. I don't need every time I go out for coffee to, for it to be the single best cup of coffee of my life. Mm. I'm often with someone. I want I want coffee as a social lubricant. I want it as a little caffeine. I want it maybe as an intellectual experience of like, oh, this is interesting to taste. But, it, you know, it, it can't be the sole focus of a business. And I think it's taken London coffee shops and globally coffee shops maybe 15 years to work that out. Oh. Yeah, there's um, a lot of thoughts that that sparked through through that. Have, have you have you come across uh, the E Myth? Oh yeah, oh big. big uh, that was <laughs> that was a super early read for me. So I to go back to the sort of starting a business. I mm. was a classic. Uh, I was a coffee obsessive. I was like, well, I understand coffee. I'm good at making coffee. I should open a coffee business. And mm. uh, very quickly, it was like, oh. Then there's the business of business. And mm. uh, how rapidly can I get good at the business of business to build sort of the machine underlying that? And and I didn't have time to do anything other than read uh, and, and read I did. And so, yeah, uh, Michael Gerber's book, I think, was uh, super, super informative, very relevant to me and further encouragement to, to work on the business or in it, uh, which becomes slightly glib when you say it, but it's so... So important. Yeah. I can't, I can't, you know what I mean? I can't emphasize enough the, the need to get out from the, 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 the daily of the manufacturing of a business, whatever yeah. it is that you make and sell and do into a, a higher level think uh, or sort of thought process to understand the model, the mechanics of the, it's a machine, right? Yeah. You're tweaking cogs and you're, you're kind of making it work just nice. That's hard. And you need to get good at that. And that has nothing to do with coffee. Yeah. That has nothing to do with coffee and everything to do with understanding Everything from people through to sort of marketing, sales, economics, finances, reading a balance sheet, understanding the impacts of decisions you make on your balance sheet, on your future, on your cash flows, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. I really enjoyed it, which is fortunate. Uh, lots of people are immediately turned off and go to the safe space of the thing that they know and care about. And, and that's, you know, not healthy for the business long term. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an insight that so many people have only only once they have started a business yeah, yeah, yeah when you realize oh actually i don't know like i guess i guess youtube is a, a, a different example because you do actually make money from it but like you know just being good at making coffee does not does not make me a good owner of a or or manager or operator of a of a coffee business not at um all. and so I, I first read the e-myth i think in like 2019 or something and I'd, I'd had a business at that point that had been going for five years and i was like my god i wish i'd read this book five years ago because all of the mistakes under the sun. Oh yeah. And and the first time I came across that phrase that you know you should be working on the business, not in it. I was just like my mind was completely blown. And now it's just so it, it feels so standard to me that I almost can't remember a time where I didn't know that that was a thing. Right. And even now when kind of coaching YouTubers and stuff, this is the thing I try and encourage more creators to think a little bit more businessy because I think creators are very easy at thinking like, oh, it's about the craft, it's about the video I want to make. Sure. If it's about how it makes me feel, which is fine. But I also, I think if you have, if you want to turn it into a business, there is a level of let's actually approach this from a, a slightly more businessy angle. It's it's you know coffee has historically had a difficult relationship with profit because you know a lot of uh, specialty coffee ran as a kind of counterculture to commercial coffee, yeah. which is coffee for profit, yeah. right? And so uh, when specialty coffee emerged, it it very much was like the it's not about the money, it's not about profit, it's about the coffee 
and to focus on the money was not to focus on the coffee, and that was to dilute the purity of what you were trying to do, and it made you something of a charlatan or, or, or just someone looking to extract money from the system, which is not what it's about. And, you know, the ethics of coffee aside and the challenges there aside, you know, it, it took me a little while to get comfortable with the idea of, like, I need profit to do the things I want to do. Like, it's the enabling factor in being able to pay people properly, hire more people, do more interesting stuff, yeah. improve what we do. You know, however you feel about the the, the model of capitalism aside, yeah. in this model, I need to make profit and good profit to have a sustainable business. Mm. And that, you know, I, I think a lot of people certainly in the coffee industry would have heard the whole like, you know, you need to make profit, be like, no, 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 I need to make great coffee. I need to find my, my customers. I need to build the relationships. And you're like, yeah, but, but what keeps you going, what builds a sustainable business is, is an underlying profit. You, you can choose to focus too much on that. Sure. And you can compromise your product, but, but they can be mutually beneficial if you kind of do it right. If you're reinvesting, if you're, if you're, you know, creating profit for a purpose, other than personal, you know, uh, gain or, yeah. or that kind of stuff. Yeah, because um, I guess profit is often seen as a bit of a dirty word. It is in yeah. many situations, right? Like <laughs> lots of terrible things are done in the name of profit. Uh, absolutely. Like loads of big businesses do terrible things for for the benefit of shareholders for to maximize profits. And I think that's that I'm uncomfortable with that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we end up in this very binary sort of world of black and white. Profit is good, profit is bad. Well, it's sort of it's sort of agnostic of that. What you do with it can be good or bad, mm. I think. Yeah. But there shouldn't be the kind of shame that a lot of business owners have around making money in order to do good things. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. You know, I, I think I got very interested in the idea of um, sustainable businesses. You know, because I, how do you build a business that that uh, exists outside of the people that work within it? Mm. Um, and and this in coffee is a particular challenge because go back to this and I'll, I'll promise to make sense of it. You do loads of barista training as a, as a coffee roaster and a supplier, you train loads of people. And what you end up feeling is that you're just pouring water into a bucket with a hole in it because you train a bunch of people, they leave because they're just there for a little bit. Uh, and the business itself doesn't retain the knowledge. And, and you look at businesses that are hundreds of years old. How did they, how did they exceed the, the will or the ideas of one person and, and become this thing where they are almost a living entity themselves? And you get into the boring answers of like systems and structure and that yeah. you, you build a business that is able to retain knowledge independent of the people that work within it. Mm. And that isn't a bad thing. That doesn't strip people of their value or utility. That makes their job easier, more enjoyable because uh, they can still access that information and knowledge. But when they leave, half your business doesn't walk out the door. Yeah. That for me became a very uh, interesting sort of thing to think about of like, how do you treat it like... Uh, a, a, a thing that can learn independently, right? Can you teach a business? And we got really interested in this with a bunch of customers. of like, okay, we need to stop just training your baristas. We'll keep doing that, but we need to work with you in a way of collecting and systemizing the knowledge that we are delivering so that it's yours regardless of who's executing it. And that sounds dehumanizing, but it, but it, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's about creating actually a much healthier environment uh, for, to work in where you don't feel like you, you can't leave because you'd break the business. That's a really, and lots of people have felt that way of like, I can't leave when I want to, I want to do something else, but I feel stuck here because I know too much of this company rests on me. And that's an awful thing to do to someone. It's not good retention. That's a bad, it's a bad thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think not enough people talk about that, the idea of like, you know, be it a founder or key people or, you know, the business itself has to 
retain information knowledge. It has to have a purpose bound sort of into it to be sustainable long-term. We are gonna take a little quick break from the podcast to introduce the sponsor of this podcast, which is CuriosityStream. If you haven't heard by now, CuriosityStreams is the world's leading documentary streaming subscription platform founded by John Hendricks, who's the founder of the Discovery Channel. And on CuriosityStream, they've got hundreds of really high quality, high budget documentaries covering all sorts of things from science and technology to history and ancient civilizations to food and medicine and meditation and like all of the stuff in between. Now, the really cool thing about CuriosityStream is that they support independent creators. And so there's this service called Nebula, which you might have heard of. It's an independent streaming platform that's run by me and a bunch of other creators. And on Nebula, we can put content like videos and behind the scenes and long form, longer form stuff without worrying about things like the YouTube algorithm. And so for example, on Nebula, I have a bunch of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. We actually have the original season zero of the Deep Dive podcast, which started off as like remote Zoom live streams during the pandemic. And that is only available on Nebula. You won't find it anywhere else. So if you enjoy the sorts of conversations we have on Deep Dive, you might like to see, you know, a whole year before we start started this podcast properly once the pandemic stopped, what sort of conversations I was having with people on Zoom. I've also got a series of videos on Nebula called Workflow, which is where I deep dive into some of my favorite productivity tools. And on Nebula, you also get early ad-free access to my videos and videos from a bunch of other creators that you might be familiar with, like Thomas Frank and Tom Scott and Legal Eagle and Lindsay Ellis. And the really cool thing is that because CuriosityStream loves supporting independent creators, we've got a little bundle deal, which is that if you sign up for an account on CuriosityStream, you actually get free access to Nebula bundled with that. So if you head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive, then for less than $15 a year, you can get full access to CuriosityStream's incredible library of documentaries and also free access to all of the stuff on Nebula bundled with that. So head over to curiositystream.com forward slash deep dive to get the bundle deal. So thank you, CuriosityStream, for sponsoring this episode. Yeah. yeah, I think this is, again, one of, the, one of those things that you only really start to appreciate once you have a business. <laughs> and before, uh, when I was reading about businesses, systems, structure, processes, HR, values, vision, what the hell is all that bullshit? And then as soon as you start like, oh, okay, now now I see what's what's happening. Now I see why I I like it's, you know, with, with, with my first business, it's bad that I'm, I am the one staying up until 12 midnight, making sure that our book deliveries for our course, which is happening in Manchester tomorrow have actually arrived because I'm the only one who knows how to deal with the supplier. That's probably bad. Probably bad. <laughs> and this is sort of figuring out all these things of like, oh my God, <laughs> like what started off as me enjoying teaching courses for medical applicants now turning into it, turning it into a business is actually a lot of the quote boring stuff, which then at least for me became the fun stuff when I realized how much there was to learn and how much of a kind of uh, what the learning curve was like. And that every new book I was reading, I was just, my mind was blown. Like, oh my God, yeah. businesses have been solving these problems problems for decades, if not hundreds of years. There's, there is a system behind this and I can learn the system. Um, yeah. I think that's the, that's the, off the, you know, I think for me though, I read loads and loads and loads of books, but there was still the kind of lag of, the conversion of information to knowledge through the, the application of it. You know what I mean? Like it took me doing it, messing it up, doing it again, messing it up to kind of get to the point where like, okay, now I truly understand the ideas here and, and how they work. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. A, it's like it's all, it's all well and good to read a book about hiring, but until you've done it <laughs> and made mistakes with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, like, uh, you know, I come from, I suppose, a family of entrepreneurs. So I, I was fortunate in that I had in my family people to be like, hiring is going to be the hardest bit. Uh, you know, all the advice they gave me, I was like a, a little bit blase about the time. They were, like, they were like, it's going to be really hard. Starting business is really hard. And you're like, really hard. Got it. Great. And then you're like a year in, you're like, this is really hard. Why didn't you tell me? And they're like, what's wrong with you? Uh, and they were like, hiring is going to be the hardest bit. And, and it's the, and it stays the hardest bit mm. forever. And you're like, nah. Nah, how hard could it be? And the Come first, we had some advice. really yeah. great first few people. Yeah. And you're like, this is fine. This is easy. And you're like, no, 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 no. You learn a bunch of awful lessons. And, and, and um, 
you know, it still remains the hardest part. And, and especially if you want to, you know, I, I think that there are businesses out there that still want to find a human, extract the value, on you go. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? That's not, that's for us, not that interesting. We're interested in development, enjoying where you work, satisfaction, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's the, the, the slightly trite line of like, we want to be the place where you do your best work. Mm. But I think that's very true for what we certainly aspire to. But that obviously, it does make things harder. It just changes the challenge yeah. and, and changes the sort of focus. Okay, so let's go back to, to 2008. You're 27 ish years old. Ish. Ish. Think. James yeah, Hoffman deciding, I've become world barista champion. Mm. I'm going to start a coffee shop. Yeah. What's like the dream there? Like, is this going to become the next Costa or the next Starbucks? Is it going to become like independent pro? Like, what, what, what's going through your mind to make you decide, you know what, starting a coffee shop is the way forward? I often think about the staggering lack of long term thinking that I had uh, and how that might have saved me multiple times. Oh. Um, okay. I think, you know, we had, when we started the company, we had a five-year plan mm. that was kind of revenue-based of like, we want to get to this kind of a revenue. And if we get there in five years, that'd be really super successful. Um, and we'll be really happy with that. And, and that would be it. And we'll do that through wholesaling more coffee. And I think once we focused on coffee roasting and not coffee shops, because economy tanked, forget about the shop, let's roast, simpler Lower overheads. So you become like a B2B service almost, right? Super B2B service. Super, uh, like just providing roasted coffee beans to right. Starbucks. Uh, uh, up until equivalent. the pandemic, we were still 80% B2B as a oh, business. Okay. Um, and then obviously that changed. When all okay, the but, but just on, on, on that front, yeah. like... I've I've never once had the dream of I want to become a you know a coffee roaster selling coffees to companies. I don't think many people have a like people have a dream of starting a coffee shop, but not a dream of becoming a coffee roaster. I think. Sure, like, but I mean most people. How did you go very down that few route? people dream about coffee generally. It's like a weird <laughs> industry. Sure. No one has aspirations. People aspire to work in wine or you know whiskey or. I don't know. I've, I've, a bunch of my friends want to start coffee shops or, or bakeries or it's restaurants. Or, uh, the, right, they, they but, don't have a social space. But no That's one thinks different. I want I want to supply flour to to bakeries. They think I want to start the bakery. Yeah, but if you get a bit of a sickness for wheat uh, and grains, <laughs> yeah. then yeah, I could totally understand how you would want to. Okay, just, you know, if you really get into flowers the, bit of for the, the industry of wheat, right. and you understand or, or a lot about product, it, and you yeah. get interested in provenance and flavor and terroir and traceability and taste of place and all of these things, okay. that can totally suck you into ingredient obsession. Uh, okay. For want of a better so word, so when you're a layman, you want to make the shop. When you're a pro, you want to make the product that I don't, think, to the I don't think it's that or, or I, I think like it's that, yeah. you know it's a different sort of obsession or a okay. different sort of passion I guess um so okay so what we wanted to do super early doors is we had been part of this global culture of specialty coffee that hadn't really kicked off in London you know it, it we maybe talk about this later I'd been part of it online for a number of years and I'd felt part of a global specialty coffee community mm. but didn't really exist in london back then there was like monmouth he'd been going since 1977 uh and there was like a little place called flat white and soho and that was sort of the beginning and end of coffee in london in 2008 mm. that's unfair to a couple of places to plimpson and sons and so but there wasn't much for a city of eight million people there wasn't much and so our goal was not to sell loads and loads of coffee. Our goal was to foster a community of specialty coffee in London to help drive the consumption of like a, of, of good coffee. Right? We wanted great coffee to be part of this city's experience and DNA. You know, so we named the business Square Mile because between 1650 and 1750, London was the greatest coffee drinking city in the world. It had a totally unique culture. We had more coffee shops per capita than anywhere else in the world. We had this really unique culture here and we didn't in 2007 2008 we had the americanized italian version of coffee but we didn't have something that was london's coffee culture and we wanted to sort of help 
foster that. And we did that through working with cafes. And, and you know, that was the route that we did it. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we kind of grew as a wholesaler. And our, our job was to give good ingredients and, and help coffee shops succeed. Because if they succeeded, we succeeded. Yeah. They sold way more coffee. So did we. So we were motivated to do a good job with product. And then in our customer relationships, you know, to help them win. That was the, the goal. And if they won, great. And and that also meant helping competitors win. If they didn't use our coffee, more shops meant more culture. Rising tides, lift all boats kind of thing. Very true with coffee shops back then. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of goal. How how much was culture? I mean, like we want to develop this coffee culture versus I need a job to make money. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it wasn't necessarily... Early days, it was community, not culture was the thing. We wanted to bring people who felt weird about coffee together and then, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. make them coherent. Um, we figured that was a great way to grow the business. But also, it was what we wanted. Mm-hmm. We were people who were weird about coffee who wanted to find like minds. And uh, it, it was a really strong, really coherent community. And the advantage of that is that if you are a deeply passionate person, if you're a lone voice, you go right at the back end of the news right before they did the summary again with the, hey, check out this one weird person. He's really into, uh, I don't know, water bottles. And he's going to, you know what I mean? He's really into it. Uh, and here's this weird person. Like, yeah, I'm really into water bottles. And, and you're like, how, is, how nice is that? How hilarious. And they treat you as the one lone obsessive. But back then, like magazines like Time Out or the, you know, uh, uh, the newspapers would, would talk to the one crazed person about coffee who'd then be like you've got to go and talk to these five other people and then talk to them and they talk to those five other people and it, it made the sort of the voice uh, the voices uh, of the community much louder and more coherent and suddenly the media paid much more attention to coffee because there was this coherent voice of coffee can be good yeah. coffee can be better coffee can be interesting and that really supercharged london and london just exploded compared to most of the rest of the world it had you know density it had enough money uh, but it also had this really coherent community and london led the world for a little while in terms of coffee culture everyone else caught up i mean melbourne was way ahead australia all that sort of stuff but london had this really interesting explosion certainly in europe or also the northern hemisphere uh, that made it a focal point for a lot of other places hmm. okay question on that front um when when you're starting a business, like now that you've done this, I think like a few a few times, and you've been in, in the in the game for for a while, yeah. uh, it's it sounds like you had a vision or a mission that was bigger than just I want to make money. Sure. Um, in that you want to create this coffee community. Um, how important do you think it is if let's say someone wants to quit the job and start a business today for them to have a wider altruistic somewhat vision behind it that's other other than I need a business to make money because I want to try and quit my job and do something that's fun. If they wish to derive satisfaction from the work they do, I think it's essential. Because earning from, I mean, it's for a certain sort of mind, just just extracting wealth is satisfying. They see the number get bigger and that's mm. satisfying enough. But for most people, it's, it's quite hollow and empty and unsatisfying. And they end up doing work they don't like because the number goes up, but they don't feel good about it and they look for something else. So I think having a purpose or a meaning behind it for me is essential. Like what am I, you know what I mean? I, 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 I don't really believe in legacy, but I, uh, I think it's a shame not to, to leave something better than you found it. That seems, you know what I mean? Like this, the decent thing to do. So I, I want to improve things or be, have a positive impact. And so that's driving a lot of the decisions I might make around starting businesses or, or doing stuff like that. And I would say the people who enjoy their work the most I've met miserable billionaires. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like miserable people, because they're just what the number's very big. So what now? Slightly bigger? Like what is that? That is, you know, and they're just miserable. Uh, I have no aspiration 
for that. Um, so yeah, for me, I think it's essential. If you want to enjoy the work you do and, and feel like it has meaning and purpose, yeah. there has to be vision. Nice. And is this how you were feeling in the early days as well? Or is this something, a philosophy that's developed over time? That's a good question. I, th I think, um, like, uh, I'm, I'm aware that I grew up middle class. And so I grew up with a safety net in that I started a business and I was never going to go to, to zero. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and I think that that's always worth noting in people like me who took risks, started businesses. There was a safety net. I was going to be okay. And I, I, you know what I mean? That, that changes your relationship with money. I think if you don't have a safety net, then I, I, I'm much more open to the idea of like, no, I need money. I need to build my safety net because I don't have one. Um, but, but I was aware I did. And so for me, early, you know, I was a very passionate person about the product. I just really, I really enjoy coffee. Mm. I get very excited about it. And so that was always a driver for me. But I also like learning stuff. And so, you know, learning to build a business was satisfying, learning to sell or market or do the other things that went alongside that. So mm. like with YouTube now, like learning to shoot better films, uh, do better audio, light properly, all of those things. I enjoy that process. That's just part of me. I like the, the constant obsession. It's just, yeah. it's, it's just very satisfying to, to get better at something. I like that. I'm, I'm always going to like that. It is what it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I wasn't super money focused. I didn't earn very much from the business for a long time. And, and um, you know, even now, I, I think my, my because we've always been bootstrapped. So the coffee company is bootstrapped. Everything else has really been bootstrapped. Uh, uh, I have um, left it in a lot of the time. Like uh, I, I like, uh, especially going into pandemics or going into whatever the economy is going to do now, having cash inside a business is a good thing to me. Uh, and that's just because I don't like to be responsible to other people because I suppose I have a bit of a control freak aspect to me. Uh, and, and it's not that I'm, I'm against investment or I'm against, you know, raising money in different ways, but I just like the control. It's just how we've always done it. Like we've, we've done everything out of cash from the beginning. And you would argue, and I would hear you and say you're probably right, that was not the best use of that money that we could have, you know, uh, borrowed, leveraged the business a little bit, borrowed a ton of cash, grown faster, done all those things. But if the goal is the goal is to make better stuff and feel good about it, then that was not a route we needed to go. So, so yeah, like uh, historically, uh, you know, we can talk about money, I guess, a bit. I've never really pulled tons out of the business, uh, which is maybe foolish. You know what I mean? I never really cashed the chips in, so to speak. But, I, you know, I'm interested in the businesses that, that I work with doing the work and being long-term sustainable. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's been the, the general approach. Interesting. Yeah. There's a, a, a good book by uh, Matt Mukri, the, the, the great CEO within. Um, one of the things he says is that he, he, he does a lot of coaching for like uh, tech founders, Silicon Valley types. Um, and he says that basically people want to go, people want to work or, or start a business for three reasons, to make money, to have fun and to help people. Um, and, but if you ask them that if the, if they could only pick one, it would be to make money. <laughs> at that point, once they've ticked that box, if they could only pick one, it would be to have fun generally. And once they've ticked those two boxes, at that point, people then shift to to the the helping people thing. And I think that's certainly true for me. Um, like it's it's very nice that right now the thing that I'm doing does all three. Um, but I think yeah, when I was starting out, I was like, you know what, affiliate marketing, selling t-shirts on the internet, I'll do whatever I can to make money. <laughs> then it was cool, I'm making money, now I'll do whatever I can to have fun while doing this. And it's only kind of now that I've done it for a few years that I'm now shifting to, actually, to, to realize this point about how having a wider mission is ultimately the thing that makes it most satisfying. 
Yeah, I think I think purpose is kind of everything for me, and the 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 bit, you know, I, I suppose I've have enough time to look back on what are we thirteen years old or yeah. whatever else like the. It's the same. It's ultimately it's the same as YouTube metrics. Like subscriber counts are deeply unsatisfying. Hitting a million subscribers isn't rewarding in any way. Not not a single way. It's 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 you know it's coming deep down when it happens, and then you're like, oh yeah, but it really doesn't feel like anything. Uh, and it's the same sort of thing for me in business. It's the same sort of thing. Like like a, a big fat balance sheet at the end of it. Sure, good, fine, whatever. It's it's an indicator. Same as an audience, you could do something with it if you want to, but it's what you're going to do with it that's more interesting, more satisfying than than the accrual of the number. Mm. So let's go back to um, coffee roasting business just getting yeah. off the ground. Uh, just again, because I'm totally naive to this space. If I decided tomorrow I want to make the Ali Abdal coffee roasting business, yeah. what what does it take to make a coffee roasting business? <laughs> As like very very broadly, are we talking like what what's the cost of yeah like, like what, the capex what, of going? Of yeah, I, going? I guess like how much would it cost to get started, and what do you actually have to do? Do you have to go to like Colombia and buy no, coffee you don't or have to. Uh, <laughs> you probably shouldn't? Um, <laughs> okay. That's complicated. We won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but no, it like there's a lot of coffee tourism that happens under the guise of buying, but it's really oh. like, anyway. What about fair trade? But like I guess it's an whole other it's a whole, it's a whole So you would need a coffee roaster, a machine that roasts coffee. Okay. They will call it depends how big you want it to be. Um per uh, the old metric used to be per kilo of capacity would cost you about a thousand pounds. That's now more like two thousand pounds. So if you want a fifteen kilo roaster, that's probably thirty grand. Um, and so this is roasting 15 kilograms of raw coffee of beans raw coffee at a time. in one go yep. to turn it into those nice brown beans that you see in the coffee shops. Indeed. And ah. So so that's sort of a, the, the biggest capital expenditure is probably the roaster. If you're in London, you probably need to treat the smoke coming from the roaster because no one likes that. So that might be another 10 through 20 can be quite a lot more. But oh. Yeah. Oh, what, to uh, make the smoke less bad for the environment? Yeah. We, you either sort of react it away or in a feet of pure elegance you burn it uh yeah we burn smoke um uh, which is n net better than in terms of greenhouse emissions burning smoke is better than just letting the smoke out because yeah. there's things in the smoke that are very bad worse than carbon uh carbon dioxide uh but yeah it's it's not you try and build them as efficiently as you can but yes you have what's called afterburners that burn smoke and Owning these is the dumbest thing you'll ever do, but it, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> uh, are electric roasters a thing? Electric, but they still produce smoke, and it, it's the roasting of coffee itself. As, as it goes brown, smoke is a byproduct, oh. so there, it's it's inevitable. The bigger the roaster, the more the smoke. So you need how how big is a coffee roaster? Like, if we wanted to make one here, how big? What, like, uh, so a fifteen kilo roaster would occupy this, this sort of space of this rug, so it's not huge. Oh, uh, it's pretty big, like. Yeah. It's hard to fit into a bedroom, like as yeah. a side hustle business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did once get a someone's uh, uh, Brooklyn loft conversion, and they somehow managed to get a 15 kilo roaster nice. into their uh, Brooklyn loft. Yeah, which is highly illegal, uh, yeah. but it was pretty impressive. Um, anyway, uh, so you need you need roasters where to treat the smoke. You need um, machines to package coffee, at least to weigh coffee. You can have to have fancy packaging and just buy bags and put coffee in but you need to weigh it properly uh and properly like beyond just a measuring scale uh, you it would need to be trading standard certified you'd need to you know what i mean if you were selling by weight at some point you need to prove the weight is the weight oh. buying a scale on amazon using that is not, not adequate for trading standards unless it's properly calibrated and you have a calibration process it happens now and again that roasters don't 
pay attention to calibration and end up selling you 230 grams instead of 250, that's illegal. Uh, you get in trouble with trading standards for that if you get caught doing it. Because well, What does trading standards do? Like, what, what trading, is it? trading standards is the body in the UK that regulates how people trade and the units they trade and that kind of stuff. So oh. if, if, if someone is selling you... 230 grams of coffee in a 250 gram bag, that's who you'd report them to. Oh, and they would investigate. They probably wouldn't, if it was a mistake, they probably wouldn't. But, you know, obviously that's a very cheeky way to make money. You can short someone a product, they're probably not going to check. You know what I mean? When was the last time you checked how much granola came in the box? You <laughs> yeah. probably don't. Uh, yeah, so, like my, my, my 50 gram bag of walkers or whatever it is. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, it's a lot of trust there. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but, uh, you know, unsurprisingly. So you need some kind of special calibrated scale and thingy so you can take the box right. of regulation. You are doing right. this thing. Um, Anyway, that's very boring. I'm sorry. No, this, uh, this is interesting. Like, it's I, I find it so interesting getting an insight into bricks and mortar businesses because mm -hmm. you just don't hear about them. Like, so no one talks about what thing. it's like to own a freaking coffee. It's really business. true. So, starting in 2008, all of the the startup stuff, and, yeah. and I didn't know what a startup was actually. I, I, you know, I didn't know what, how is that different to a normal business. I would see this word startup. I'm like, what exactly is a startup? Mm. Uh, it's a question I feel like no one's really good at answering yet either. But um, I, I was trying to start this coffee roasting business and all of the books were about online startups. Yeah. Everything was about online startups. I was like, no, but I mean, how do I, what is, what is my model? Like how, you know, you know, no one would tell me how much money to make. No one would tell me how much is a, an appropriate amount of money, yeah. a profit. What's the model? You know what I mean? It just wasn't out there, which is very frustrating. Yeah, which I guess, I, I guess is kind of unusual because you would, like, bricks and mortar businesses have been going on for loads longer than online businesses. Right, but I mean, it was... It <laughs> but was... all the stuff is written by the online business owners and Absolutely. the courses and yeah, gurus yeah, yeah. and the videos and the podcast, the whole shebang. It was all about that stuff. And it, felt, yeah. it felt weird. I felt like, you know, but what I will say is that, that um, bricks and mortar is satisfying in a way that digital is not. Mm. A lot of us, uh, the day could be summarized into, I have slightly less digital stuff now than I did earlier this morning, and I'll have more tomorrow because all I've done is write emails today. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's, I sent a bunch of emails. It's like, I have slightly less in my digital to-do list. Yeah. If you've manufactured a wall of coffee that you're going to sell for more money than it costs to make it, that's quite satisfying. Here's the thing. I made it. I packed it myself. I sealed the bag. I weighed it out. I put it in a box. I sent it to someone and they paid me and I made money on that because I, I created value as part of this process. Mm. That's rewarding in a way that, that um, I struggle to find the same level of, of sort of manufacturing satisfaction. Videos are different because it's different. Yeah. But um, certainly in other jobs or roles or you know, that, that's been less, uh, you know. Yeah, I guess being an affiliate marketer, <laughs> you don't really see the, <laughs> yeah, I, I, the tangible output of yeah, the thing that you're I creating. Like, and for a while, yeah. I, you know, when I was doing more office-based stuff as the company grew, occasionally I would just want to go down and pack coffee for an hour because that felt more satisfying than the seven hours of staring at a laptop yeah. um, for me, you know what I mean? And that's just, you, you, you know, anyway. So... Uh, All the way back to roaster, starting a coffee roaster. 15, 20, uh, 15 to 30 grand for the 15K, uh, 15 kg roaster. Uh, another 10 to 20,000 for the weird machines that purify the smoke. And some other. Say, say another yeah. 20, 30 of like stuff, equipment for packing coffee. Yeah. You're going to need computers and stuff to run stuff. And then ultimately, I suppose you need raw material. Yeah. Where do you get, um, where do you get raw coffee from? Initially, you buy it from uh, importers. So they are, there are companies out there that source this stuff, bring it in, warehouse it in the UK, and you can look at a shopping list and be like, I'll have one bag of that, one bag of that, two bags of this, and one bag of that. A yeah. bag being 60 to 70 kilos of, of the kind of jute sacks. And you would need to, for your first order, probably buy 10 bags of coffee, about 700 kilos. How much does that cost? Mm, four, half, five grand, probably. 
So this is not the, 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 this is a business that requires large amounts of upfront capital. Right. Like in fairness, a lot of bricks and mortar businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know we the great lesson from my point of view is that we didn't start with enough um, because I worked enough too many capital. hours. Yeah. yeah. So I fell for the the classic. What's the? Can I swear here? Yeah, please. Oh, great. Um, so the hero bullshit of entrepreneurship of like I must grind myself down. I'm a fucking hero. I'm working super hard. I'm doing it right. And it's such bullshit and it's such a toxic aspect of all work and I hate it, but I definitely worked 110 hour weeks for like months. Mm. Ground myself down to the point of deep misery and there is no quicker way to hate a thing you love than to work like to work on it like that. Right? Like, I really love coffee. I definitely got to the point where I was like, I should quit coffee. I should just, I, I, I hate this. I hate this. I hate my life. I hate working in this. I should just do something else. Because I worked in a stupid way and I burnt myself out physically and emotionally because people do that because the world says, good for you. Get the grind on. You know what I mean? It's your thing. It's yours. Pour yourself into it. And you're like, no, don't. Don't do that. That's really bad. What you should do is start with enough capital that you can hire people to work with you, pay them properly, uh, and then work in a healthy manner. Do you know what I mean? Like, just have work and home. Uh, be separate. That's helpful. Turn off. Don't work at weekends or don't work some days a week. It's very satisfying early doors to, to pour yourself into a business. It is rewarding. It's enjoyable. But it, you're just burning through yourself so fast. And so I regret not starting with probably twice as much money, hiring more people out of the gate, and going home at five o'clock. Do you know what I mean? Like, just be done. Just turn it off. Turn off the... Go home. Enjoy life. You can build this thing. You don't have to sacrifice yourself for this. The downside is you need more money to start with. So it, that's, that's the trade-off. We didn't have that money. We didn't know we needed it. We had enough to buy the physical things, not enough to build the systems, hire the people. And so we just worked ourselves to the bone and it was miserable and I regret it and it was a mistake. Oh, okay. On that point. Yeah. So I feel like sort of uh, at least in the online online discourse around starting businesses, circa 2013 to 2019 was the era of the hustle culture movement sure. saying that, look, you're starting from nothing. Your 20s are for hustling. You've got to grind yourself to the ground, work on weekends, work on evenings to make that, to start that thing. Since pandemic, I think, has accelerated this, there's a lot more like that kind of approach of actually sustainability is important, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what a lot of the kind of pro-hustle people say is that, look, when when you don't have that startup capital, like, and you're working your crappy job and you need to start the business, there is not much you can do other than kind of work between, I don't know, 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. and also work on weekends and all that kind of stuff. And I guess you're just hoping it's just a, a season of time so that you can build enough money, build a business off the ground because it will take blood. Theor the theoretically, it takes blood, sweat and tears to get a business off the ground from from moment one. Yeah. Um, and a lot of entrepreneurs that I've spoken to who have done that kind of were grinding themselves to the ground say that, yeah, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't really a happy time. But without that period of crunch, which for several years, potentially, the business wouldn't have got, gotten off the ground. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that you would have been able to do it in a more nicer, sustainable way? Or do you think it was necessary to put in the blood to, to get, this, get this off the ground? I think, I think that the tricky bit is that if I had had the understanding that I have now... Mm and a little bit more capital, then yes, we could have built the same business far more enjoyably. I don't think it would have been a bigger business necessarily, mm. but it, it would have been a more enjoyable process to, to do that. And I think certainly, you know, I may start more businesses in the future. And, and I know that I got a little bit 
hustly when YouTube started to kick off for me. And it, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, I got to feed this a little bit because yeah. you know, it feels when you when it feels like you're pouring just straight gas on flames, and there's just every everything you put in comes back ten times. You're like, more, 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 more. Mm, quite uh, addictive. <laughs> yeah, but it, then you still end up with the well, where are you going with this? Like, what's the yeah? You know? All the big questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. You, you might get to where you don't know where you you know you get to a, a point slightly quicker, but what's the point? You're trying to get to. Mm. Does it need to happen quicker? Is that better? Um, so you, look, I, I'm not saying that there's a perfect way, right? Like to to back in 2008 to raise another hundred grand would have been really hard. You know, the 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 the, the system that we live in makes it much easier to raise one million than ten grand. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, you well, know, we, we can get a ten grand bank overdraft. But I feel like if you go and pitch big and you make big promises, yeah, you can raise lots of money on the on the promise of lots more later. Yeah. But if you want just like a ten grand overdraft, please, the bank's like, mm, no. And yeah. like, you're like, I turn over like thirty grand a month, and they're like, uh huh. And you're like, ten grand? You know what I mean? Like pre-financial crisis, you could get like a month's turnover as an overdraft was the sort of rule of thumb. Yeah. And post-financial crisis, the banks were like, nah. Uh, which is really unhealthy for for loads of small businesses. It was it really restricted access to capital from 2008 probably to 2015 was really difficult, yeah. right? If you wanted less than 100 grand, yeah. the moment you wanted serious cash to make big promises to to roll out this giant thing that that'll IPO or there'll be an exit, much easier. Do you know what I mean? For a while, I was like, I could easily raise it two million quid yeah. I, in a way that I couldn't raise 200 grand. Wow. That's what that's messed up. But that's that's the way it was back then. Probably this, it still is now. It reminds me of that quote, which is that, um, I think you, you probably would have come across it, that um, uh, if you owe the bank 200,000, it's your problem. If you owe the bank 200 million, it's their problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's, yeah. What uh, a weird, weird system of capitalism. <laughs> but that's what it, I mean, like it's messed up, and yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, so, so you know, I, I, I'm perhaps talking about this idealized world where I could have found another 100 grand somewhere in a way that, that didn't, you know, result in me signing over uh, control or, or direction or, mm. or, you know what I mean? Uh, some yeah. aspect that would be later important. But I do know that had we accrued more capital at the start, we could have worked in a way that was less damaging to our physical and mental selves. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I think you can justify hustle culture all you like. I, I just, I, I don't think I'm proud of those years, mm. the way that I worked. Do you know what I mean? Am I proud of where we got to? Yeah, maybe sure. But I don't like that that was the the route, and I certainly wouldn't wish that on anyone else. And I yeah. would wish for or encourage a, a system or a, a way of working that wasn't that. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I would hope for other people. You know, I don't feel like I suffered. You should suffer too. But yeah. That's a sickness that infects our culture. I'm a. I suffered. I would like you not to suffer because yeah. this sucked. Uh, that's sort of my feeling about life. So yeah, I, I'm not saying there's a perfect way. It's a messed up system. Yeah. But that's my experience and how I feel about it at the end of it. So I guess, okay, so let's say if we if we could rewind 13 years and you have the same understanding you do now, but you're in those market conditions. Yes. It sounds like you probably would have spent more time trying to figure out how do I actually raise the startup capital I need such that I don't burn myself out yeah. rather than, oh, can't raise a hundred grand. You know, there's always other things we could do if we knew the value of it. But I guess at the time when you're at that stage of life, you're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just work harder. Right. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely it. And certainly the, 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 everything around me told me that was the right thing to do. Mm. You know what I mean? I, that was the, the, the culture around entrepreneurship was, yeah, yeah you work. You can yeah. put those out. No one else is going to do it for you. It's your business. Get out what you put in. Uh, and I believed it. And, but I, I, I don't, 
you know, I don't want someone watching this to hear me say, yeah, you should hustle. Yeah, you should suffer. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying those words to someone. Mm. Were bits of it fun? Yeah, lots of it was fun. Like yeah. it, it, it was, it was growing. We were part of this booming thing. Like, um, you know, uh, it, we felt um, like we were making an impact. You know what I mean? Like we felt influential. That was very satisfying. We felt like, you know what I mean? Like we felt like we were pioneering in some ways. That feels very arrogant to say and awful, but it felt that way at the time. Mm. Uh, it's not really a phrase you get to use about yourself. Uh, but that's how it felt. It felt yeah. like we were kind of pushing your ground and it was it, people were excited about it. Uh, and I think that we were having a wider impact and growing more than just our business. So yeah, that was that was good. Yeah, because I think this is the kind of conundrum I find myself in sometimes with this business and the team that we've got here where like it's very easy for things to feel very frantic that oh we're doing all these things we're launching this project nfts are a thing let's get on that you know abcdafg and like you know the other day i kind of just got a, a bit of an impression that everyone was just a bit like sort of working flat out and i kind of stopped and took a step back i was like well, why the hell are we working flat out here like mm. this is a this is supposed to be calm reason i left medicine is because i didn't want a life and death job <laughs> i didn't want something that was like massively stressful right so why are we creating these con these like constraints for ourselves where we have to be wedded to oh this course needs to come out in q1 because 31st of march is an arbitrary deadline that we have decided and if we push it back two weeks that's the end of the world and therefore we have to burn the midnight oil and i think without a it's when you i i guess you know our, our, our team's fairly young average age like 27 ish when you have like a youngish team of people who are you know hungry and keen and hopefully enjoy the jobs it's very easy to unchecked it sort of to turn into this flywheel of sort of frantic franticness and, and sure. stuff and it needs a bit of a, a moderating influence like a coolant <laughs> to be like hang, hang on let's just actually think about why we're doing this yeah you know are we all happy broadly happy with how much money we're making and to the to extent that we're not on the poverty line poverty line yes cool so then chasing more and more for the sake of like i don't know an extra an extra dose of revenue or profit or whatever at the risk of sacrificing our mental health and burning out and stuff, probably unsustainable. Let's, you know, let's that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I, I, I think it's back to the idea of, uh, you know, your best work does not happen in that environment. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, you might occasionally pull out something from the bag under pressure, but constant pressure. Yeah. No, no one does their best work like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you need space, you know, like, uh, uh you, you need, to, to just have for everyone needs a little space in their work of just like I'm not I, I can have time to think and read and be bored briefly and yeah. those things are really important really useful especially in creative work so going back to uh, our roasters so we've contacted one of these wholesale suppliers of like raw coffee beans yeah needs to be roasted now you have a wall of coffee beans that needs selling. Yes. What do you, what do you do then? Do you go to Starbucks? Like no, email Starbucks.com I mean, like, and be like, hey, do you want some coffee? Like, how, do, how does it work? No, no, no. You, by and large, you're going to sell to independent businesses. Okay. Um, but Starbucks already have their own system. Starbucks for... roasts their own coffee. They've got a massive facility in the Netherlands that, that supplies most of like Europe and, and uh, most of Europe now. I don't think they anyway. Um, so you, you're probably going to sell this either online, which is one sort of challenge, or you're going to sell to other. Uh, coffee shops and I think it, it was a little bit different when we started but but these days it's back to to having a bit of a problem in that most people who start coffee roasting companies are very passionate about producing the best coffee they can and uh, so they'll 
think that because they have what they believe is better coffee, that's going to be quite easy to sell. But the problem is that if you go to a coffee shop and you say, hey, I've got better coffee, one, you're saying the, the coffee that you have chosen to serve so far is not very good. Mm. And two, that's probably not fixing a problem that a business owner has, right? Like sales is, is solving problems to me. And so if you think about what problem a coffee shop might have, better coffee, probably not one of them, actually. Like they've probably already chosen coffee they like. And so why would I buy your better coffee than, you know what I mean? Why would I buy this? And yeah, so, if it's not a problem, people aren't going to pay to solve it. Like exactly. So then you're into okay. Well, what what do you do that's different? And 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 that's a much more complex thing. And that's also why a lot of small coffee roasters struggle to grow because they don't have a compelling answer to uh, a problem that a cafe owner might have. Uh, but yeah, that's 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 what you're going to do. You probably quite early get stuck in the trap of credit, where you might say, oh, you you're going to let someone get the coffee and pay you. 30 days later. Oh, yeah. That's right. the standard thing, isn't it? Like invoice Super. terms and accounts yeah, receivable yeah, yeah, and all this yeah, BS yeah, yeah. that normal businesses, non-online businesses have to deal with. And and that yeah. historically has come from larger businesses leveraging capital to gain customers of like, what's the problem the coffee shop's got? Not enough cash flow. Great. Let me solve that problem for you. If you sign with us this binding contract to buy coffee from us for 12 months, we'll give you 28 days from invoice. So you'll order coffee through January. We'll send you an invoice February 1st. And on the 28th of February, that, that coffee's due because we've got enough cash that we can lend you this much cash mm. and you've got loads of time to sell that coffee, make the money uh, and have a bit of cash flow back. Okay. So this sounds good and bad. Yeah. So what are the, I guess the good part is that you can then get the product without paying for it. So for the coffee shop, it's yeah. great. I, I can, I can get 500 pounds worth of coffee in the door. I can sell that, turn that into 10,000 pounds. Obviously I've got to pay wages, I've got to pay rent, all the other stuff, but I get a chance to do that before I have to pay off the bill for 500 pounds at the end of it. That's the, that's the upside. Then also, however, I'm a bit stuck because I can't buy anyone else's product because they won't give me the terms and I'm in this binding agreement. So essentially they've bought my loyalty, but they've solved a problem for me, which is mm. cash flow. And that's a very common problem in, you know, a business that, you know, coffee shops have big VAT quarters, you know. It's, Sorry, big, it, big VAT quarters? Quarter, so they'll often have a large VAT bill at the end of each quarter oh. to, to pay to the government. Yeah, and then that um, causes the cash flow issue. Right, it's often a cash flow issue for, oh. for businesses yeah. that don't make large margins and aren't accruing a lot of cash at the bottom. So having suppliers give you credit terms essentially gives you liquidity. The problem is that if you're a small coffee roasting company, it's very easy to get into that. And then coffee shops, well, they often fail. Uh, and oh. okay. At that point, if they go into administration, you uh, you know, best case from a liquidator might be ten p on the pound kind of thing of, of your of your so, debt. If you uh, manage to get to the top of the pecking order of like who's getting paid out yes. by uh, those, which you won't, so you're getting nothing. So that's going to be a straight bad debt. And so you've given them the coffee. You've, given you've them, said you, they they promise to pay you sixty days from now. Right. But in that sixty days, they go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. And you've already given them the coffee. Right. And that well, you can't do anything about that. Classic. Cl uh, this happens all the time. Loads yeah. of bad debts out there. And and chances are actually you probably kept they 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 probably missed the payment. February 28th, I'm like, no, no, we'll get it to you, we'll get it to you, just keep sending us coffee, we'll, sorry, we messed up, we forgot to write the check, or someone messed up, or whatever other story, and so you might get 90 days of product to that customer, and then they go bust, and then you're out that much money. If you're a giant coffee company, eh, yeah, okay. it's cost of doing business, it's built into the price, it's fine. If you're a small independent coffee roaster, we haven't built that margin in, because you try to be competitive with pricing, uh, you can you can have a five or 10 grand debt that would take you down too, because that might be your cash flow gone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, historically, we were always taught bricks and mortar is, is like, it, 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 profit is one thing, cash flow is everything. 
Okay. Right? Like if you don't have, you go under because you run out of cash in the bank, not because you weren't profitable, but you ran out of cash in the bank. Mm. Because certainly, you know, we got, we were never not profitable. We were always profitable, but we got real close on running out of cash because you do. If you're growing, you know, the roasters buying stock, buying bags, we're not getting the same sort of terms. So we're laying out much larger invoices. We've got, you know, say a hundred grand of stock. That's cash out. We've got all these other outgoings and we're still waiting for money coming in. And yeah. there's profitable money coming in, but there's a gap. Yeah. And so, you, you know, uh, that doesn't exist as much in the online world. But but bricks and mortar businesses, cash flow is the main concern, uh, which is why credit is such an ap appealing way of, of selling coffee. Uh, so, yeah, that's the sort of that's the, the, the bit that you create quite a fragile market. And certainly, you know, right now there's a lot of debt in the market. You know, I mean, there's lots of businesses that are struggling for cash that will owe money to suppliers and they'll owe money to fruit and veg suppliers, milk suppliers, takeaway cup suppliers, coffee suppliers. And they're hoping the restaurant or coffee shop or bakery will do well enough to be able to pay those. To make it through. And that's quite, that sounds quite hard from, the, from, from their perspective as well. Like, yeah, it's incredibly stressful. It's, yeah, you're yeah. like always running in the red and at the end of the month, you're like, oh my God, we just need to wait for tomorrow. I'd be like, oh, but the person paying our invoice is off sick, so we can't, we can't, we can't do payroll this month. Right. Or we can't afford payroll this yeah. month. We don't have the cash in the bank for payroll. And then, and then all the employees are like, well, I need to pay my mortgage. And right, stuff. I'm not like, coming to work if you're not going to pay me. And yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, <laughs> I, you know, it's, yeah. Then this, But this is the reality of a highly competitive yeah. old industry. It's been going a long time. It's developed certain bad habits. And certainly I think credit is one of them. Um, but I mean, that's, again, further encourage people to underprice product. You know, coffee is probably too cheap. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's as cheap as people can make it and still just about survive. Yeah. That's kind of how pricing ends up being in a highly competitive market, mm. which isn't in anyone's best interest long term, but it is what it is. Yeah. So how did how did Square Mile succeed despite all of these? I think initially it was a, a different sort of um, approach. Our, our problem early doors was like people aren't really drinking specialty coffee and people didn't really know how to build businesses doing that. And we had a background of teaching and training and education. And like, we're going to help make you successful. Our goal is not to sell you beans. Our goal is to make you a successful cafe. And we'll work with you on your training programs. We'll work with you on equipment or anything else. Oh, but our okay. goal so is way more success. than just selling them coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's more just, like, yeah. that's, that was our approach. Oh, and and yeah. everyone's problem is I'm not successful enough. Yeah. So if you're focused on like, we're, we're going to increase your top line. Yeah aim to increase your bottom line too, somewhere in there you buy some coffee, but but we're trying to help you build a better business. That was our initial kind of goal. And, you know, it's changed over time. And, you know, uh, uh, at some point, if you have a more recognizable brand, the problem you can fix is my customers don't trust me because I'm a new coffee shop. And the answer is if I buy a brand of coffee that they do know, they might trust me. They see the logo of X coffee company. They're like, oh, this is probably good coffee, right? That solves a problem. It's a difficult problem because other brands solve the same problem. It's not as effective. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that was always our approach of like, we want to help our customers yeah. succeed. It feels disingenuous now. Like, you know, I did all the sales early doors. It's very easy for me to talk about that time. I don't do the sales now. And you know what I mean? Like it, it feels like I'm speaking on behalf of people, which is, mm. you know, I, I, I don't want to minimize their job. Yeah, no, I appreciate it's that. more we're, complex We're kind of now. talking about early days where... But yeah, certainly early days, that was our kind of approach. And and I think we had some experience in what great coffee was. And I, I suppose I had this weird title to be like, well, I know what good coffee is because mm. I'm on this stupid dog show. <laughs> uh, so, so like, you know, that's that's how that went. Okay. So the way you, you differentiated yourself in this crowded, potentially crowded competitive market was not n not actually competing on the quality of the coffee. But in fact, being like the whole, the, the service as a whole where we help you be a better cafe solves right. the problem that you're having. And... 
by coincidence, by the way, we also sell some of these things. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, I think so. It was designed to be a more collaborative relationship awesome. and, and not just here's a box, here's my check. See you next week. Okay. Uh, so what's happening with the Square Mile these days? Well, it's, you know, uh, it's been an interesting couple of years. Uh, yeah. Obviously, when, when the first lockdown came in, we, you know, 80% of our revenue stopped because uh, every cafe shut initially. Mm. Well, a handful stayed open, but almost everyone shut because that was the thing to do and, and businesses shut down. And uh, I think we were very fortunate that over the years, clearly people had developed an attachment to our coffee through the businesses they were buying it from because when when B2B disappeared, online exploded. Mm. And so we very rapidly transitioned into being very focused on, you know, we were aiming to be good at online already, but suddenly there was just a bigger market for that. And, and I, I think we had a lot of growth. And that was, you know, uh, something that we worry about quite a lot in that it's been a really busy, successful two years. And that's definitely put a strain on people inside the business. And I think, yeah. you know, like um, our focus for this year is not rampant growth in terms of top line or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a kind of, it has to be a year of consolidation. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a year of... Um, Making a stronger company, and a stronger company is not necessarily growing the top line at all costs. A stronger company is looking after the people inside it, uh, making sure that they enjoy coming to work, are not exhausted by the process. I, I think we all have like a a layer of fatigue globally from the pandemic. Like there's there's a I think everyone feels fatigued by it all. Is that fair? Yeah. Do you you know I think that impacts everything. Uh, just it's been draining it's been emotionally draining and physically draining for lots of people and that's regardless of where you work or what you do and i think you can't ignore that fact when I, mean, I think if you've been successful in that time and you've had that then i, th I think it's maybe the temptation would be now we've just got to go harder again and harder again and harder again and i'm just not sure uh i think we're not sure that that's the right way to go and i think we want to build a, a healthy strong company because again we're interested in sustainability we're not yeah. working to an ipo we're not working to an exit uh, we're just trying to do what we're doing, do good, meaningful work, but sustain and last, yeah. you know? So it sounds like Square Mile's kind of grown from 2008 to 2022. Yeah. Things seem to have gone pretty well, sure. even with pandemic transition to, to, to online and stuff. When did the other stuff that you do fit into the timeline? That's a really good question. So I've, so, you know, I, I sort of took on a de facto managing director role in Square Mile in the early days. We didn't really think in those terms, but mm. I suppose I did those kind of things. Um, and I have also worked with other companies as a kind of collaborator in terms of designing or promoting equipment and those kind of things. And so by 20, well, I want to say 2013, maybe, okay. I was sort of like early 30s. At that point. Yeah, yeah, traveling enough, 2013, 2014, I want to say, I was traveling enough that we realized that if anything inside the company was reliant on me being in the building, it's broken. Mm. Because I wouldn't necessarily be in the country. I was in Melbourne for a month at one point. I was traveling all over the place. Like it was just a lot of travel, a lot of away time. And I, I think that the dual fact is combined of the kind of person who might be good at starting a company is not necessarily the kind of person who's good at running uh, a small, medium-sized company. Mm. I don't know, you know what I mean? We, we were initially a small company and then we got to be a big, small company. And then I yeah. think we're now how, a small, medium-sized company. How many people are we talking? Like, in Square One now is about yeah. just under 30. Okay. Um, but, but, but I think that the role of running a business changed. And mm. I think it wasn't what I was very good at. And again, I wasn't always there. And I think that you have a broken system. 
Yeah. Right? That, that's bad. So I stepped out of the managing director role and, and a new managing director stepped in. She'd been with us for a, a while. Very capable. And she runs the company still. Uh, and we began to work out how that relationship would work and be healthy for mm. both the company and specifically, actually, for her in that role. Uh, you know, if you talk to a lot of founders who, um, in theory, move out of operations, they often love a medal. They love to come back, set some fires, <laughs> and leave, right? And so we, you know, we've tried to learn other people's hard lessons the easy way. Yeah. And so really early doors were like, how do we stop this happening? Okay. You know what I mean? What are the ground rules yeah. of how I interact with the company now okay. that I'm not operational? Um, do you not have a thing of like, okay, so I, I have this problem where it's all well and good trying to get other people to, to do stuff. And then you see something that you think, this seems dumb. Why are we doing it that way? And then you start meddling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm not allowed. Okay, that's the deal, right? Like, that's the deal. I, it, 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 if I want someone to take on this mantle and to work with me and then be satisfied by the work, I have yeah. to let them do the work. And and it, I have to move into a more passive role yeah. of how am I useful to you, right? But it, it's a yeah, sure. There's times where I'll, I'll I'll be like I have a beer in my bonnet about something and I'll be like talk 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 into yeah. the office. Can we talk about this? And but that's the first point of contact. It's not me going to the person in the role and being like, can you just go and do this because I've seen this and I want this and do that. Yeah, I did that a little bit in the past. I get told off and I'm like, good because I shouldn't be left unchecked because it it creates a really difficult dynamic in a business because ultimately I'm a founder and if you're a founder, there's a different sort of a relationship you have if you work in the business the founder walks in the door mm. that's different right and so it's easy to accidentally override or derail a direction that the managing director is is dictating correctly mm. Mm. don't mean to be like what you know i it's easy to come in and be like oh i was thinking about this the other day and you can set someone off on a task for a week and and you know then at the end of the week the managing director is like so where are you with this and they're like oh i'm way over here yeah. And you're like, why are you over there? Because we're going over here. I said, well, James said, and that's really unhelpful. That just, that's a company working against itself, and that's bad. So the rule is very simple. I can be called upon by the team. Yes. If they want something from me, they can take something from me. Yep. And that might be ideas for marketing. That might be ideas for products. That might be knowledge or specific things or whatever it's going to be. Mm. But anything that I wish to inject into the company has to go through the managing director at an appropriate time. We will sit down and talk about my ideas, and then those that, that are deemed worthwhile yeah. can then be taken in further. But I am not allowed to come in and give direction to anyone in the company about anything. That's the deal that we made. Nice. And that's because I'm saying you're in charge of this company. Yeah. I have to mean it. Otherwise, they're not. And yeah. then it's just a very, I'm not in charge of the thing. I'm, I have all the responsibility of running this thing, but I'm not actually able to steer the ship because someone's got their wheel on it and they keep pulling it to the side every mm. five minutes. And I'm trying to go over there and they've just had a moment of like, but I want to go here quickly. Yeah, It's unhelpful and I think it's bad. I am not perfect in that regard, but I try really hard and we talk about it a lot and we make sure that that we are constantly aligned because you just can't have the bit of like, well... You said this, but she said that. Yeah. Uh, which one do we believe? Which is the truth? Really unhelpful, right? If I'm to be useful, then I have to be a resource. I have to be passive. And I, I have to be respectful mm. of what I've asked someone to do in that role of, of running the company, yeah. uh, which is, please let me run the company. If you want me to do the job, let me do the job. That's the deal. Uh, so so that's, I guess you need quite high confidence in that person that yep. you have 
hired them to run the company, they are competent. Et but cetera, they et also should be comfortable saying, I need a little help with this. Yeah. Or I'm not sure of this. And, and you know, like the person I speak the most to in the company is the managing director. We talk a lot about everything and, mm -hmm. and it's just great for me to feel connected and also for her to have a sounding board and, 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 and you know, another person she can talk freely to about any aspect of the business. Yeah. That's that's a good, healthy relationship, I think, inside a business. And I think it allows us to be very coherent and it just stops me setting fires. I, I want to, don't get me wrong. Like I see stuff and I'm like, I just want to go and meddle with that. But I know the deal. And I, I can't have it both ways. It doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? I can't have the freedom, so to speak, yeah. of the responsibilities yeah. and then all of the fun meddling. That just, it's, that, that just breaks the thing. Might be fun for a year, but it breaks the thing. Yeah, meddling. Meddling. I have so much stuff I want to ask you about this more, but I think we're getting, we're getting into weeds that is not applicable to most of our listeners. Sure, sure. So if I can take you back. So when, when did the YouTube channel start? And how did oh, that fit into uh, your whole So I, I, pretty familiar, I blogged early days. I started a blog in 2004. I felt very isolated and alone in my coffee obsession. Yeah. And the internet was full of people, enough people that I could connect to, you know, like, it's like a healthy version of Flat Earth, right? Where, where like, <laughs> I was the version. one isolated person being like, I really love coffee and no one else cares, uh, but the internet cared. And so I, I started a blog to sort of chart what I was learning to, to you know, go through the classic process of if I, if I understand it, I can explain it to someone. Right. So, and in, in sharing it with someone else, that's valuable. So that's why I will write this blog. Mm. And the win of the blog, uh, which is a bit like YouTube, I kept doing it and I just kept doing it. And for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, I kept doing it and blogs came and went, uh, but I sort of was consistent throughout yeah. and consistency has this really fascinating value. And it wasn't that I blogged every week. I wasn't Seth Godin doing it every day. Like, uh, you know, it was, I was just regular. I kept going and, and uh, it made it more rewarding for me and also more valuable and, and, and um, as a thing. However, by 2016, people have moved from blogs to video. And I'm a little, I feel late. I feel late actually in 2016, uh, like Casey Neistat's exploding at that point. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, and I'm like, oh, I should, oh, I guess I should start on YouTube, I guess, and, you know? Um, and I knew people that would do like starting to spend money with influencers. And I was like, what's going, is there an economy here? I didn't really know about it. No one takes YouTube very seriously at that point outside of people already in yeah. YouTube. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, 2016, I started uploading videos, which were initially like, um, I, I, I bring up nice that cause you know, like it was a really easy, uh, thing to copy. Yeah. Right. And that's so I distinctive I'll, style. That's very, right. Yeah. I'll do like, I'll do like vlogs, but I'll do a weekly vlog. I'll cut up my week, uh, you know, put some like head nodding hip hop in there and you know what I mean? I'll, I'll do that and I'll try and work out how to do that. And I did like 12 weeks of that, I guess. I was like, okay, actually, I, I, you know, I wanted to develop a, a practice of making videos, but these aren't the videos I particularly want to make. Mm. Like I, I'm not actually interested in sharing my life that much. I'm, yeah. I'm interested in, in kind of communicating with that. And really early days, I wrote a blog post about takeaway cups and how they're not that bad and what the actual impact of them is. And I made a video about them and, and the, like time on site on the blog, it's like a minute and a half on average. It did like, I don't know, 10,000 views. And then back then that video did like 15,000 views on YouTube with like a six minute time aside. And you're like, all the attention is on YouTube, is on video. And so if I want to communicate with people, if I want to learn and share and teach, I have to move to video. That's just what it is. And I'd made little videos in the past and I like, I, like I liked it, but I wasn't very good at it back then. So I started making videos on YouTube and I, you know, 
couple of really interesting lessons early on for me was that moving audiences between platforms was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. However many, I had like 20,000 followers on Instagram and I could not get them to go to YouTube. I was like, but I'm making videos. And they're like, yeah, but we like Instagram. Uh, same with Twitter, same sort of 30,000 on Twitter. Couldn't get anyone to go to YouTube. Yeah. And, and you got and that initial audience through the blogging, through just being well, the initial, a bit prolific on I, the internet. I got to 2,000 quite quickly. And then I flatlined for a long time. And it was really like, you know, it took me a long time to get to 10,000 subs from mm. that point onwards. And that's the that's YouTube, right? Like it's just the graft. And it's just, it's a, it's a difficult place to be discovered takes time. You've talked about this a lot. It is what it is. And that was, again, totally my experience too. So yeah, um, I think by 2019, I crossed the 100,000 oh, subscriber mark. Three years to get three to 100K. Years. Yeah. That's, um, that's great. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not mad about that. No, that's you know interesting. I mean? like, because I think, I, think, I, think, I think people have a lot of like unrealistic expectations super, about, yeah. about YouTube. Like you see the big YouTubers and often they're the ones that sort of broke out earlier on. Yeah. And then I find, you know, we have hundreds of students going through a YouTuber Academy every cohort and people were always like, oh, I, I'm, I'm on video number 32 and I'm still only on like 3,000 subscribers. You're like, bro, it took me 50 videos to get to, to get my first thousand. Like, what are you talking about? And even you with with that inherent unfair advantage, as it were, of being a world barista champion, of sure. running a coffee roastery business, of like right. being very, very pro at this thing, talking about the thing that you're pro at, still took three years to get to 100K. Totally. Damn. Yeah, that's great. I love that. But it, you know, <laughs> so it, it, was, it took me a long time to get better at making videos yeah. to understand how to. You know, I've done a lot of presenting over my life. I've done a lot of talks on stage. I did. You know, in in the in the job, my first kind of um, training job on with the commercial machines. That was a lot of presenting. Essentially, it was two two hour talk I would give several times a week. So I, I got comfortable presenting, mm. which is a whole other skill that, that I, I guess I had a lot more practice at coming into YouTube than is normal. Yeah. I guess, which maybe helped a little bit. Um, so yeah, that 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 took a while. I had a few videos do really well, but but you know the, the way that you know it, it, it was interesting to me that um, weirdly, coffee is a part of so many people's lives, and coffee is a part of loads of bloggers' lives and mm. bloggers' lives. And you would see lots of people have a little coffee part of the the videos, but actual coffee content on YouTube there wasn't very much. And quite early on on National Coffee Day, like YouTube's Twitter account was like, "Go and watch James," uh, and I was like, "Wow." That's cool, but yeah. also you don't have many choices. This is a really empty niche. It's changing very quickly now uh, as the sort of niche fills in inevitably. But that's good. That's really helpful. Um, so yeah, like um, so yeah. For the first three years, it was like I had a little space um, that I used for making videos and also uh, a, a sort of office near home, far enough away that it was healthy yeah. uh, but still convenient and then that was a bad studio and it was sounded awful and slowly we sort of improved that and then it kept going and going and it sort of gained momentum um, and for a long time it made no money and I, I, it took me a long time to discover that I had somehow at some point unticked a box <laughs> on AdSense that was like the, the essentially there's a box of like can, can Google serve people custom ads mm. to who they are and for some reason I'd unchecked this, I have no idea when I'd unchecked it but basically Google couldn't serve a sp tailored ads which meant that my AdSense was appalling, mm. uh, really like appalling. Uh, for the views that I was doing, I was earning like a fifth of what normal AdSense would have been for those kind of things. I don't really know, but the point was I had a job, I had a living, and this was like a thing that I was doing because I was passionate about teaching and sharing and communicating and doing that kind of stuff. And then it grew and grew and grew. I was like, okay, now this is a business and I have to sort of switch my thinking in this to being a business now. Mm. And, and I still struggle with that part of it because my my instinct is to try and build a sustainable thing 
and you're constantly wrestling with YouTube of like, when when do I hit the top of the bell curve? Yeah. When am I going to see the decline? How do I build a sustainable thing? But then you sort of listen to other channels. I think Marquez has been particularly interesting on this front. He's just like, no, I'm just going to build a production company in an in, in, a, in a sector that's always interesting, and we're just going to go. Yeah. And you're like, oh, maybe that's because I part of me is like, okay, this is this is. Am I going to be a YouTuber in ten years? Yeah, I think about this all the time. I don't know, yeah. but but I'm genuinely enjoy making videos and, and and producing them and sharing them and doing this kind of stuff. So I'm like, maybe I want to do this in ten years. I don't, I don't know. My career has taken so many weird routes, and mm. I, you know, like I've done so many odd things as part of the stuff that I've done. I, I'm very bad at predicting the future. So two years feels like a long time to be predicting for. But yeah, so now I, I'm trying to understand how to build this into a sustainable thing. Uh, what that is, what that looks like, how much time I spend doing that. Like I have quite a condensed work week, probably more so than most people would think. I'm sort of, for various reasons, I probably get everything done that people see me do in about 25 hours a week. And then I have other stuff the other part of the week. Uh, and I try and sleep, but I, whatever. Um, but yeah, 25, 30 hours is my kind of active working time in a week um on this sort of stuff mm. and, and the sort of tangential stuff of that as well you know this sort of advisory work that i do or other things that are off topic yeah. um so yeah i'm trying to work out what 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 you know it's better the ideal day what do i want a week of making videos to look like what do i want a day to look like i've always enjoyed having no structure to my life it's just easier uh i don't have any routine i don't know what i will do tomorrow i do tomorrow but i mean tomorrow i'm gonna get on a plane and go to italy that's not normal oh. so you know like uh you know there's no rhythm and i'm sort of okay with that to some extent uh, i've lived that way for a really long time now so yeah it, now youtube is a thing i have to pay attention to it and i feel a responsibility with it you know what i mean like i feel like i especially as, as a large creator in a small niche mm. i have a disproportionate influence i think is unfair and inappropriate but that's the nature of having a loud voice in a in a relatively quiet room mm. um so that stuff stresses me out a bit but um yeah, mostly I just like, I, I like making videos and I, I think I have ambitions to be better at that as well as the stuff inside them. I just, I don't know. Yeah. Do I want to be a director? No, but also kind of. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So what does your overall like business portfolio, as it were, look like? You've got YouTube channel, you've got the roastery. Do you sure. have other so, stuff going on? Um, so... Like what are so the streams the, of income? Streams of income. <laughs> well, like lots of them aren't income, if okay. that makes sense. I don't take anything from them at this point. Okay. Um, what are the streams of revenue then? <laughs> sure, revenue. Yeah. Revenue is pretty fine. Uh, so Square Mile is one. Square yep. Mile owns most of a cafe called Proofrock, um, which is a, another business. Uh, Square Mile also, ha well, we sort of have an investment in a, a espresso machine distribution company in the UK. They so I collaborate with a manufacturer in Italy and, and I've helped them design and build and sell machines. Not so, I haven't built them, but they've built them. Oh, I've you've designed them. espresso machines. That's sort of. Espresso. I've had That's input sick. into these That's cool. things. Um, yeah. And so that relationship has led to kind of uh, us beginning to import those machines into the UK. And then they have mostly taken over that business. It's a branch office for them, but we're mm. still sort of involved a little bit yeah. uh, in that business. There's YouTube and the sort of bucket of YouTube that is also things like money from books. So I wrote a book in 2014 that continues to sell in a way that I don't understand, but I'm very happy about. Uh, it's one of those ones where they sat me down early doors and were like, you're not going to make any money. You'll have a beautiful business card, but you will not make any money. And I was like, cool. And then it's done like 300,000 copies and everyone's a bit like, oh, wow. Uh, 
Bloody hell. No, I know, I know, I know. Uh, and that's in translation. I've only recently got into the publisher. So 300,000 is a hell of a lot it's of copies. Cute, but that's, that's over, enormous. Yeah. that's his 2014. Yeah, so it just ticks. It's just one of the books. good in a way. That's, that's the Marquez approach to selling books. It's gone really well. This uh, is your Atlas of Coffee. This is the World Atlas of Coffee, yeah. So just finished another book. We wrapped the photography on it last week. Um, that'll come out in August. Oh. Hello. Uh, Can you send so, me a copy? Of course, uh, of course. That's um, you'll need, yeah, it's, it's just about making coffee. It's kind of the YouTube channel as a book yeah. and kind of fleshed out in a different sort of way as a book. Um, anyway. Uh, 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 just uh, just on that note, gig, yeah. so, so we've shared the 300,000 number. Like, does that, like, how, how, how much do you make on a royalty from a book sale? Oh, very little. Are we talking, uh, like, pennies? Are we talking dollars, tens of dollars? Like, oh, per book. So, okay, so um, I think I might, I'll make less than a pound a book at best. Okay. And often less than 50p a book and oh. often less than that. Because a lot of them have been in translation and so the way the licensing of translation works. Yeah. Because the Atlas is very image heavy, it's mm. a ton of cartography, ton of licensed images. Yeah. The the word component is little piece of the book. And yeah. so the words don't earn that much money. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's okay. Like, you know, over those eight years, yep. it's been it's been really nice to have that revenue come in. Mm. And I, it, it's money I never expected. Yeah. And it's been really nice. nice. Um, but yeah, it's not, I haven't earned 300,000 pounds from it, uh, which <laughs> yeah. is, you know, part of me is like, I should write fiction. Uh, yeah, yeah. That seems to be much better. Children's on, fiction in particular. Children, yeah, right? <laughs> it like, seems uh, to be the real like, that's the side hustle these but, days. But, yeah, not going to do that. But um, so yeah, no, the book, but the book has been a great way to sort of, I, I don't know. The book was written to be not about me, which is kind of weird. I, there's my pictures not in the book, yeah. nothing about square miles in the book. It's, it's built to be useful to anyone interested in coffee. And that could be competing businesses to mine. Mm. I'm sort of, I'm the name on the front and that's the only time I'm really in the book is the, is the name on the front thing. Um, and, and that's sort of the same with the YouTube channel. Obviously I'm not there to advertise the coffee company because I want to be useful mm. to coffee companies everywhere who can be like, oh, you want to know about this? Go watch James's video about that. And if it's sort of apolitical, that, that works much better. Um, anyway, so that's the book. I'm bouncing around a bit. Um, so yeah, the book and, and, and sort of other sort of uh, royalties or other things like that would fall into to sort of the YouTube business. Um, we have a merch business separately uh, called Tens, Hundreds, Thousands. Um, that's one thing. And then uh, there's a few kind of investments. Um, in some cases, uh, I've started and sold some businesses in the past, and those have gone different places. And one of them um, was a kind of part cash, part paper deal. So I have a little investment in one company that bought a business of mine, and they have some investments in various things. Uh, I invested in um, a canned coffee beverage in uh, San Francisco called Tyker, who are kind of like coffee and adaptogens in a can, and it's great. It's <laughs> very good. If you could get it here, it would be great. I'd send you some. Um, I work with a uh, Danish booze creator called Empirical Spirits, who do really interesting stuff. Uh, there's a non-alcoholic brewery in the UK who I think are amazing called Big Drop. I have a tiny investment with them. Uh, there is uh, oh, there's an interesting software as a service platform in coffee. Um, I'm working with a little bit called, called uh, Beans, who are doing interesting stuff, but really on like business-to-business -business coffee stuff. And, and, and a few other bits and pieces, I think, out there. I'm not really an active investor in that mm -hmm. regard. But I, I'm interested in seeing cool businesses do cool stuff. And, and there's times where I'm like, yeah, okay, I'd, I'd like to be a little bit involved. But I'm not writing big checks. 
You know what I mean? Like uh, the little checks, <laughs> little tiny checks. Um, just because... So I think you on a cap table is just evaluated in itself. Even maybe. If you uh, only put to, some, to some businesses, more, yes, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's been interesting to learn about that world. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, most people never have to worry what a convertible note is. Uh, and that's probably for the best, yeah. uh, <laughs> if I'm honest. You know, like, I've uh, seen that term so often, I still haven't Googled to find it to know what it means. Just, uh, and then you get into like blind trusts and like, you know, like the, the whole deal of... Um, preemption rights and dull things and I don't want to get into this. Yeah, I, have, this I have lots to learn about that particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, it's certainly not something I'm interested in, in, in deepening my involvement in mm. uh, meaningfully. Um, but yeah, like that's a sort of, sort of, I, I, I you know, I, I run a very boring, I have a decent pension. Yeah. I have a little bit of money and like a, like a Charles Stanley-esque kind of thing. Uh, but I, but I historically, I've just chosen not to pull much money out of my companies. And so, um, yeah, that's been a kind of uh, so a high paper net worth, but not necessarily a yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, which you know, like um, yeah, like uh, I, I don't have a particularly extravagant lifestyle or mm. demands for one really. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it I don't know. I, part of me is like you should get the chips off the table. The kind of dealer, you know, the, yeah. the gambling part of me is like you know, like cash out a little bit, cash out, cash out. But I'm like, I don't, I don't know. What are you it's not, do cash? Like, put it, put it more. You know, like. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, like that's that's maybe not the healthiest approach to money, but it is it is mine and 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 like I don't know I, I I'm not driven by accruing an enormous amount of wealth because I don't know what I would do with it. I'd yeah. probably aspire to give a bunch of it away or use it help you know sensibly because I don't I didn't want very much you know what I mean uh, which is something I'll try and maintain. It just yeah. I don't know I see again I've had interesting talks with incredibly wealthy people and and. Uh, they're not very happy. Miserable people. I got a bunch of miserable people. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't appeal to me. Just, I don't know. I think you very easily get into just make the number bigger. And that's the least rewarding game in the entire world. Mm. So that's, I'm like, how do I not play that game? I don't know. And I th also think, like, I think, I think generational wealth is important. But I also think you easily cross a line into just, like, the easiest way to destroy a human is give them an enormous inheritance. Mm. I don't think there's ever evidence of that going particularly well. So mm. like, like I, I believe people should be able to build generational wealth, but I also think there's these kind of points where it gets a little screwy. And I think, I don't know, like, you know, I was never promised any, I was given a safety net growing up. Sure. But I was never promised. There's never going to be like a, you know, but I imagine how it must be to grow up and be like, at some point I'll have a hundred million quit. I think that's, I don't think that's good. Yeah. Is that good? I don't think that's good. I'm not sure that's good. I, you know what I mean? You can do with your money what you want to do, but I don't. I don't know if giving an enormous amount of money to someone mm. will help them lead their happiest life. Mm. I think about that quite a lot. So anyway, a little bit like the die with nothing thing, right? Like, nothing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit similar to that. Of like, you know, yeah. I don't think you should. It, it's a world where you might want to pass on enough that your kids can get out in the housing market, or you know what I mean? Like they can get through university debt free and not, you know, carry a student debt throughout their entire life. That's, unnecessarily and stupidly crippling. Mm. But I don't know if millions of pounds at some point is like good and healthy. Question. Um, one standard, well, so somewhat standard piece of business advice is stick to your core focus, stick mm -hmm. to the thing that you're good at, your hedgehog concept, your whatever, your unique ability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot when it comes to setting up a kind of merch company. Sure. So I was very inspired when you gave a talk at the Ziggurat Summit a few months ago, actually, yeah. um, around <clears throat> how you have this separate company, tens, hundreds of thousands, which does your merch, as it were. But it's, it's not like it's not like a t-shirt with your face on, no. on it, although those would sell. Uh, right. It's more like these, these cool products, uh, like the decks of cards and, and, and stuff like that. And 
I like the idea of making physical products. And in fact, we have some physical stationery, which you do. is around here somewhere. Um, but I also see the advice of, you know, the physical products are a bit of a side hustle. Like, I'd love to make my own mechanical keyboard. I'd love to make my own everyday carry laptop bag, mm -hmm. just because I freaking love keyboards and bags and pens and journals and, you know, the daily productivity kit. Uh, but it's not our core focus in that when we as a team are not very good at making physical products. We don't have any expertise in it. And the thing we do is content. So one argument is double down on the thing you're good at. There's another argument for diversification, for building a brand outside of me necessarily sure. that I can be the marketing director of, but not necessarily the managing director of, uh, or not so intrinsically tied to the brand that it is unable to function without me in the room. Um, but it's like, yeah, any, any thoughts on that balance between stick to what you know and do content around the thing versus branch out into multiple things where you might not necessarily be an expert like physical products? Uh, sure. I mean, like, I, I we do it because yeah. the actual creation process is very enjoyable. Like, making fun new things mm. is satisfying. And I think that's why we do some T-shirts and posters, but we also try and do more interesting stuff that's just kind of satisfying yeah. in that regard. Um, you know, I, I think... The reason we kept it separate is, again, it's that kind of part of like, how do you build a sustainable thing? I want it to have a relationship with its audience outside of me. I can do the marketing for it in some ways. That's good. But I, I like the idea of it being its own independent thing, that it can grow a team inside. It can have development for the people inside that. Not, It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to turn over millions of pounds. It can do that as a smaller business and still be satisfying. And at the end of it, to be like, we made some cool stuff and people really enjoyed using it. And that for me is a, a, a probably a bigger motivator than it generating thousands of pounds of, of yeah. profit or, or payout. But that's just, you know, going into this because I've had a job from the beginning and this hasn't been lifeblood stuff. I've had a stronger feeling of like what do, what's the thing i want to do that i enjoy mm. you know what i mean like i i have no doubt that the essentially stuff has been very satisfying for yeah you. Like really sitting nice. down with it and using it yeah i get to use you know my diary I mean? every day right it's just like that's cool. that's that's enjoyable <laughs> even though it doesn't make much money yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> in and fact i don't think we're at break even just yet but still it takes time like yeah. um but it, it's one where at the end of the year that may be a moment that you reflect on and be like yeah. i've enjoyed that yeah that was that was that was you know like uh that was a return on whatever I put in. I felt a return on that. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that has its place. I, I think, you know, running around trying to do 6 million different t-shirts and mugs and all the rest of it can easily be a distraction. Yeah. It's not a great margin business mm. unless you get deep into the manufacturing and then that's yeah. building the manufacturing. Yeah. Like you're <laughs> going to start a paper factory. There's a whole other thing. You know what I mean? You'll make a lot more money on each little diary, yeah. but you'll have had to build a paper factory to do it. Like, you know, that's the, that's, that's the trade-off. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I think for me, one of the requirements of business is I enjoy it, I'm satisfied by it, and I think this is a great way to do that. And again, I, I think I'm also interested in poking around in the places that people aren't there. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, no one's really making trays for dosing coffee into before you put it in your grinder. Yeah. Uh, lots of people are making t-shirts. Uh, and so the t-shirt real estate available to get my t-shirt on a body is limited. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're going to have to pick the, uh, and we still make them and I enjoy them and we just have some fun with them. But like it, it, it's t-shirts are not as satisfying as like, we've got a 
some botanical prints coming, like botanical drawings. Uh, an artist who works with Kew Gardens a lot, like it's like legit botanical drawings turn into like these posters. I want to own it, actually. Like I, I, if I don't want to own it at the end of it, we don't make it. Uh, if I don't wear the merch, we don't make it. If I don't want to oh, drink out of the mug, we don't nice. make it. Like I have to model. want all yeah. of it. And I really want to own these prints because yeah. I love botanical drawings. Uh, so we're going to make it. And, you know, like we can. And why would you not if you could? That's that to me is the better. Why would we do this? Because we want to, and we could. We have the opportunity. Like, I think uh, switch into YouTube for a second. Like, I'm in a weird place where I can. I, I have a freedom to make videos that really no one else in my industry can make. Mm. It doesn't. You know, like I, I, I uh, from AdSense or Patreon or other things, I can spend money to make videos. So I feel like I have a moral obligation to make things that no one else can because they don't have that opportunity and mm. I would be squandering the opportunity to make stuff. So that's what we want to do. Like it, it doesn't, I'm going to fly to Italy tomorrow because I want to talk to someone who's the biggest collector of vintage espresso machines in the world. Like they have a museum, they are like the, the person. And I want to buy a vintage espresso machine. And ultimately I want to put it on bar in London and have people drink coffee from a machine made in the fifties and have like a really, that's a nice thing. You know what I mean? But that's, that's the upfront cost of that. And actually it will lose money as a video, but it doesn't matter. I can do it. I should do it. And that would be cool because I want to do it. Uh, that's a weird metric for making decisions, but it, it's very satisfying. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah, if I think of the keyboard, if I think of the bag, the stationery, it's like, it's it's cool and I want to do it. And I know it's not going to make much money, but I think I, I need to start shifting my thing from the thing that we should be doing is the highest ROI thing right. to ROI is measured in things other than profit <laughs> yeah, it, yeah you know it shouldn't be damaging for the longevity of the business but i you know i think that yeah it's not it's easy it's a nice metric mm. which makes it very appealing yeah uh, but i don't think it's always the best metric yeah and i really like the idea for example spinning this off into another company that that can have its own team that have ownership that have right. equity etc etc so that it feels like and it, you know i think it's it, it the, the the model that you described sounds like you are the owner of a mul multiple businesses but not necessarily the operator of multiple businesses Correct. And that I'm feels, not very good at it. Yeah, that feels interesting. I, I, I think I'm kind of like you, and I like the idea of starting stuff and mm -hmm. shaping the vision initially. And then when it comes to the day-to-day -day stuff, I would much rather someone else deal with that. Yeah, but it, you know, I think it is important to understand that, that there has to be a trade-off in that. Yeah. And that there's, I days, where I, yeah, there's yeah. days where I want to get in the nitty-gritty and I just can't, yeah. I shouldn't. And that's just a, that's the, that's part of the trade-off. But yeah, I, I think I'm not very good at a bunch of stuff. I'm quite good at certain things. And, mm. and I think I'm most useful if I'm doing creative stuff. Yeah. I'm kind of good at ideas. And ideas are valueless uh, without execution. Mm. And I'm not the world's best executor. So I need to work with good executors to be vaguely useful to anyone. And um, I think we, we overvalue ideas. Uh, you know, you sign NDAs around ideas. You sign, oh, it's, a, it's a nonsense. They're worth nothing mm. until they're executed upon. Do you worry about, like, money these days? No. Okay. I mean, yes and no. Like, uh, uh, you know, going into the current economic future. Yeah. If we go through, uh, if we get into the spiral of inflation and all sorts of other stuff, yeah, that's concerning. That's mm. a worry. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really meaningfully where i mean i've worried about it in the past I've, yeah. you know like i've sold food sold clothing items or, or vinyl to pay rent and mm. you know like uh uh i don't worry about it the same way now but i'm i'm you know what i'm aspiring for is just i want the brain space back uh to think about other things um so yeah i i think that's but that's easier if i don't want a ton yeah and i think if i had a lot of 
I'm trying not to get into the hedonic adaptation yeah. of, of that stuff where you just consume more commensurate yeah. with that stuff. Again, I'm desperate to learn other people's hard lessons the easy way. Mm. Uh, and you, you don't always, you, you, you intellectualize it, you understand them, but you still kind of get sucked in. And then, you know, two years later, you're like, oh no, this is the lesson I need to have learned two years ago. And I, I can't learn it on paper. I have to learn it by yeah. making mistakes. Okay, so I'm I'm 27 right now, probably in a similar position that you were probably a few years ago, just getting started with all this stuff, not taking a lot of cash out of the business because reinvestment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm noticing a tendency of lifestyle inflation in myself where it's like, you know, £1,000 a month rent is good, but 5000 gets you a really nice apartment. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wonder what 10000 like. You know, it's, it's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we were talking about espresso machines. Be like, oh, I'd like to get into, into this as a hobby. And I, know, and, and I see the warning, like, the warning signs of like, hang on, the more the kind of uh, baseline, how much money I need to comfortably live, the more that increases based on just hedonic adaptation and um, lifestyle inflation and stuff the more worries about money I just will have further down the line. Sure. Whereas if, if I can actually be very comfortable living a slightly more frugal life, uh, keeping in mind the, the principles of die with zero, then it would free up a lot of headspace because right now I spend a lot of time thinking, oh shit, what, what's the business going to look like three years from now? Are we still going to be profitable? Am I still going to be a YouTuber, et cetera, et cetera? Any advice? <laughs> just I, I think, throwing that all at you. I, I what do you reckon? It's <laughs> really paying attention to the dissatisfaction or the lack of satisfaction that comes with spending more money sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you buy the nice thing yep. and you're like, take a nice camera. You mm. buy the nice camera. Like, that is nicer, but I'm not satisfied. And part of your brain goes, you didn't spend enough. Right. And so that's the, yeah. but the answer is you can't spend enough. Your, this feeling is inevitable. You can't, you can't spend it away. So it's, it's when you have that feeling, I think it's really useful and nice to be like, okay, that is, oh, there isn't, there isn't what I, what I'm looking for is not here in the mm. thing. And I think, I think a nice, I'm not picking on you because no, I saw pick, you buy a nice yeah. camera, but, uh, but I think that's a good example of that. Like that, that feels nice to use and there's moments where it feels special, but it's left you feeling like, what do I get for even more? Right. I, I suspect. Yeah. I'm like, the Leica Q2 it. is nice, but like the Leica Q3 is going to be even better because it's going to have a way of recharging via USB or the no. Leica M whatever that has film. Oh, hello. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, th that's <laughs> the wrong diagnosis yeah. of the symptom. You know what I mean? And, and it's just trying to catch yourself in that loop of like, yeah. oh, I can't, I can't upgrade my way into a, a more, a, into satisfaction. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it isn't there yep. and, and stop chasing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, but at the same time, lean into the things that do give you real satisfaction. Mm. I really enjoy food. I really enjoy restaurants. I don't want to, you know, I, I think the fun thing about restaurants is that um, the really super expensive ones are terrible value for money, okay. right? You can eat incredible. The cutting, the, the most interesting food is not necessarily the most expensive. Sure, if you want to get a Noma or you want to go to the Fat Duck, that's, that's an experience. But I think really interesting food doesn't have to be very expensive. But And, and that can be satisfying. It's discovery. It's mm. just straight deliciousness mm. you know what i mean like uh, that that i'm happy to lean into and spend on because i find a strong return on that yeah. particular thing you know and 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 try not to fall into food as fuel or just like yeah. whatever else that happens because you've got stuff to do and i eat at my desk like most people and that's wrong and messed up uh but the trade-off of trying to work more in less time um so yeah that that that's a, a kind of piece of it i think of just like where where are you finding genuine satisfaction mm. and not just the that's good I enjoy it, but, and there, like, that's a dead end. And you can go further. You just, it's a dead end down there. Yeah. The minute you buy the nice thing and it's not quite what you wanted and you want more, no, nah, not going to happen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess um, 
Ramit Sethi has this kind of idea. He's called, he talks about a figure, figuring out what is your rich life. Like mm -hmm. what, what are the areas for you in which uh, the addition of more money does in fact lead to more enjoyment, satisfaction, et cetera. And it sounds like for you being able to just eat at whatever restaurant you want is a significant value add. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas for other people who are happy with like the local fried chicken joint, <laughs> that's not a thing that they should spend money absolutely. on because it's not going to bring them any satisfaction. But I, but I yeah. think that's, you know, it's, it's understanding where your passions kind of intertwine. Like yeah. I'm a flavor person. You know what I mean? So that's unsurprising that I'm mm. interested in food and then you know, things like provenance and story and all these kind of things get woven into good food yeah. and good restaurants. Uh, there's no more fried chicken. That's yeah, fried chicken. chicken. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I, I think that's it for me. And, and just like thinking about budgeting for those things separately, yeah. but also understanding them well enough to, to buy them well. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I love food. It doesn't mean I should be spending 500 pounds a meal yeah. to be satisfied. That's a different that's just a, that's the wrong shortcut. Mm. You know what I mean? What is your sort of uh, vision these days? In what regards? Because you said that before you had this, like, this vision of like building a community of coffee lovers or equivalent and you were agnostic about the details of the execution. Sure. Do I, you have a similar thing for like your life or what you want to do personally? I think there's a bunch of, you know, I, I work in a deeply broken industry. Okay. Coffee's messed up. Coffee is built on colonial wealth extraction. Coffee is ethically highly questionable. It's bad. Even if you're paying better prices, you're still working within a system designed to extract as much wealth as possible from producing countries and, and capture it and keep it in consuming countries. That's not very good. That's a massive imbalance of power. It's ethically highly questionable. And while we try and operate within that ethically, it's a more extreme version of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Like it's... I'm, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with that being a part of my life. And I'm, I don't know how you change that, but I'm interested in working towards coffee being a better industry. Uh, I, on my end, I feel like I have a, an opportunity to, to have people see coffee as being more valuable than they do. The coffee industry spent a hundred years teaching you that coffee was cheap, easy, commoditized, gets you caffeine and, and a bit of bitter taste and it's fine. And that isn't true. And I need people to see it as being a bit more valuable because uh, they enjoy it more that's the secret if you enjoy it more then then you've got a bit more space to spend money on it because it's rewarding and you enjoy it so that's my kind of raison d'etre for youtube is to like have people enjoy coffee a little bit more so they see it as being more valuable because coffee needs to get more expensive because it's just too cheap and it's wrong yeah end of story uh and then i have responsibilities further back in the chain to how we buy and that kind of stuff to do a better job but i don't feel like i should necessarily lump ethical challenges onto the consumer who just wants a cup of coffee in the morning. If I get you enjoying it, delighting in it, it's a very positive experience for you, then that's easy for me to develop that relationship. If I just tell you, you should feel bad about yourself for buying coffee, that again, dead ends things a little bit. So that's kind of a thing. So I, yeah, I, 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 to make coffee sustainable, coffee has to be much more expensive. That money has to go to producers. They need more power in and uh, more sort of equity in the whole supply chain. Uh, and at the end though, that means a more expensive cup for consumers. And I need them okay with that, seeing the value in that to sort of have that happen. Mm. I can't do this on my own, yeah. but it's a role I can play. There you go. That's very cool. There you go. I don't <laughs> know. This sounds it feels great, yeah. tiny and pointless some days and satisfying and wonderful in others. Yeah. And that's just the nature of this. Yeah, it's like you're not being so grandiose as like, I want to change the world single-handedly, but it's like wanting to leave, make the world a slightly better place in your own way where you're kind of leaning into the things that you're good at, the things that you enjoy and the platform that you've built, therefore the opportunities and privilege that you have to make this change happen or yeah. work towards it.
I think so. I think that's a pretty good summary of, of, of the aspiration of the the project right now. Yeah, I think it's a good place to end the, end the conversation. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank I feel like we could me. we could talk for hours and hours. Yeah. And it, would, it would be it would, it would be good to do a round two sometime where we go more Absolutely. into. I'm very curious about the ethics of coffee. Mm. We kind of went a little bit into the whole like Nestle stuff, which I, I still like have so many unanswered questions about. Um, and I'd love to learn more about the sort of more specific the business side of things that you managed sure. to pull, pull the strings of. Um, but I think, yeah, this has been great. I think people have got, will, will get a lot of value from the conversation. I hope it was fun. I thanks I thanks for coming along. So, yeah. yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.